are now tuned in to this week's episode of our podcast. Today, we are going to interview some of the greatest and most influential minds in our field. By sharing our collective expertise, we will show you how to harness, control, and use your own skill set to achieve ultimate success and live the life you want. And now, please welcome your host. I'm Patrick Carelci. And I'm Adriana Cortez, and we're the hosts of Red Pilled America, a new storytelling podcast. Red Pilled America tells you the stories Hollywood and the mainstream media don't want you to hear. Visit the iHeartRadio app right now to listen to Red Pilled America. Hey, we get it. You don't want to be hearing a progressive commercial right now, so let us tell you something you do want to hear. No one is funnier than you. People laugh just thinking about the things you've said. I'm laughing at one of them right now. Coworkers repeat your jokes at the office, but they're never as good as when you tell them and shame on them for trying. There. Don't you feel better? You'll also feel better knowing you could save when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Although I'm sure you'd have a funnier way to say that. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Bundle discount not available in all states or situations. A major milestone in the push to recall Governor Newsom. The campaign now has a million signatures. I made a bad mistake, and I expect more from myself. And that's why we started this Vaccinate All 58 campaign, recognizing that all Californians need to be included in this vaccination process and that we can't leave folks behind. We're going to see faster administration. You'll see that. Hold me accountable, you will. And now, here's the latest update on recall signatures versus people vaccinated from John and Ken. Well, recall signatures are at 1,500,000. But, and if you haven't done it yet, go do it because they need to get closer to 2 million to account for signatures that'll be thrown out because people uh, send in duplicates, they get loaded and don't remember. <laughs> they sent it in the first time, and also people uh, sometimes. Uh, they, they, they fill out the form, and they never registered to vote. You have to be registered to vote to do this. So uh, keep doing this if you haven't done it. Uh, yeah, now, they, they, they actually said they're confident at the end of the weekend they'll have $1.6 million in hand. That'd be nice. Yeah. I, I think this is going to get out of the ballot, uh, the way the numbers are trending. Now, when it comes to uh, vaccines, we're up to 5.5 million vaccinations, 5.5 million Still, all the news sites are reporting that we have uh, well over 2 million on the shelf somewhere not being used, even though Garcetti and Newsom claim that we're out of vaccines. We're, I mean, we're at zero in the city of L.A. They've closed Dodger Stadium for several days now. Right. Uh, so there, there's some nonsense story there. Somebody's lying or somebody's royally screwing up, and it's not that hard. And, of course, there aren't any journalists interested in finding out what the real story is, but uh, we're we're 37th in the state in percentage of shots used. In the category of percentage of people who've gotten the double dose, we're 46th. Well, so that, that's uh, another fallout from not having enough vaccines. Yeah, so uh, we still stink. Hasn't gotten any better six weeks into the new year. And there's still a huge disparity, and Newsom and Garcetti are pretending that we just never got the vaccines, and all the databases, the CDC database primarily, says otherwise. Yeah, 
I will play for you, uh, Governor. Uh, what is it again? Smugface. Smugface. Resting. Resting. Smug, resting. Smugface. Uh, clip number two here, because today he was in San Francisco. That's where he went for his anti-recall tour around the state. He was there with Mayor London Breed. It was another vaccination site. But he was asked about the problem here in L.A., which John just mentioned, that we had to shut down the Dodger Stadium site for a couple of days because of the vaccine shortage. Here is his usual insipid reply. Cup two. How can it be? Because we don't have enough vaccines coming in the state of California. Talked to Mayor Garcetti two days ago, yesterday morning, also texting back and forth about this. I'll be back down there next week in the Cal State um, uh, L.A. site, which will not be taking away from existing allocations of state um, vaccines. But it's simple. The answer is there are not enough vaccines coming to the state of California. And as I noted, we have more visibility over a three-week period because of the Biden administration's leadership. Uh, but this is the issue that will become an even bigger issue that frames the lack of number, the lack of capacity that you see here every day in terms of total numbers of people coming in versus those that could otherwise come in. It's constrained by one thing now, simply supply, federal supply. Well, and now you'll see they've expanded, as we just mentioned last hour, this afternoon. They're going to allow people with underlying medical conditions ages 16 to 64 to get the vaccine beginning March 15th. So that's just going to add to the lines. That's going to add to the crush to get appointments. Uh, here's the Los Angeles Times, which is not interested in finding out the discrepancy. Uh, they claim that uh, California has been given 7.8 million vaccines. 7.8 million. And as I told you, we've only used 5.5 million. So how does Dodger Stadium end up with zero? And how does Garcetti and Newsom stand flat-footed, sucking on their thumbs, saying, oh, what do you want us to do? Uh, they're not coming in. Yeah, we check the mail every day. They're just not there. That's crap. Could those vaccines have gone to counties that don't have the demand we have? It was allocated well, poorly? He should know that, and he should get them redistributed. We've got the worst caseload in, in the state and our biggest vaccination Center, Dodger Stadium, has zero. Two, two miles from Dodger Stadium is some of the biggest hotspots in the country. This is garbage. This is not, and everybody lets them get away with that. Astonishing. I'm like, am I crazy? In the LA Times, this is their website. They're telling us it's 7.8 million. And they don't have any stories on explaining, well, why... Over 2 million vaccines aren't in people's arms with Garcetti standing around going, I don't have any. It's just it's garbage. What a no, garbage media we yeah, have. That appointments, I don't know how early you can make an appointment, but I guess maybe those are set up for coming appointments. Well, why didn't they have them set up for today? No, I meant other other counties. Only LA. Oh, I don't know. Is, is only LA City's delaying. Nobody knows. The county, the, county web, the county vaccination sites are still open today. It's just the LA City sites. So, and and by the way, if you haven't gotten through yet, yeah, uh, you got a lot more competition coming because now they're opening it up to people ages sixteen to sixty four who have uh, major medical conditions. Uh, March fifteenth, yeah, uh, cancer, chronic kidney disease, chronic pulmonary disease—that's lung problems, immune system, 
pregnancy, sickle cell, heart conditions, heart failure, coronary artery disease, uh, severe obesity, type 2 diabetes. So congratulations, all of you who ate and smoked too much. You're going to get a prize for all your bad living. On the recall front, two quick news items. The Republican National Committee is going to give $250,000 towards the recall Newsom effort. They will launch a digital and texting program encouraging people to sign the petition. So I, wherever the money comes from, that's good news. Two hundred and fifty grand. Oh yeah, that's what did we learned yesterday? It's three dollars and something a signature, roughly three fifty. Three seventy, I think. Three seventy. Well, that'll help get some uh, signatures. And not that anybody was asking, but since we're expecting a recall, they were expecting to have a ballot vote. People went back to two thousand and three, the last time this happened. Gray Davis, of course, was recalled. But what was important is that there was a an enticing name on the ballot to replace uh, Gray Davis, and that was Schwarzenegger. So people were fishing around for a comparable name for this year, should the recall happen. And I don't know how this happened, but the name that came up was Caitlyn Jenner. And her people said she will not run. Caitlin is not running for governor, has never considered running for governor, and is very happy doing the work promoting LGBT rights. Who started that rumor? It By must... the way, I think Bruce Jenner was kind of Republican, wasn't he? When... Yes, he was. He was. Yeah. He, In fact, he was uh, on our show promoting uh, Schwarzenegger when he ran. Oh, he and, was. Uh, right. Back when he was Bruce and he was one of the dads at uh, our preschool. He used to oh, talk yeah, about uh, yeah no he was he was a pretty a very solid uh, conservative Republican that just, must just be... not not crazy right somebody was fishing around thinking well who can they get that make a splash like Schwarzenegger did right well what about Caitlyn Caitlyn Jenner I mean well we don't really have a lot of high profile Republican people in the state of California well that's so. see that's an indictment that all these uh, Republican buffoons don't think any any there are any candidates. They're, they're going to put together a powerful, charismatic campaign to get people's attention and can actually get Democrats and independents to flip and vote for a Republican. Right. Uh, right. They, I mean, they, they you know they think that there's nobody really strong, even though Kevin Faulkner and John Cox have announced yep. that they're running. They've already announced, but they're probably not just stirring up a lot of interest among those groups you just mentioned. Democrats right. and the decline to states independents. Because, you know... Uh, instead of looking to see if people have the right policies and the right ideas and if their experience shows that they're capable in some way. And I'm not, we're not endorsing anybody. But instead of doing that, they want to go, oh, well, who's famous? <laughs> well, right. it worked then, didn't it? Uh, yes, Especially yes. if you have 100 yeah. people on the ballot. Yeah, right. <laughs> you jump in there. That'd be fun. Oh, uh, no. It's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got a first round of the boy slide. We do have hacks for the dumpsters. Svetlana and the crew are here to throw a hack in the dumpster for us today. And woo, they're going to have to show some strength and really hold that lid down because this person is, uh, uh, let's just say loud, now it's spoken. Yes, this is a, a noisy hack in a dumpster today. John and Ken show KFI. <laughs> John and Ken Show, John Cobalt and Ken Shampoo, KFI, AM640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. 
All right, coming up, we do have a hacks to, to throw in the dumpster. Let's just say it's along the subject lines of uh, reopening the schools, which ain't really happening in a lot of parts. Oh, yeah. Another day California. where the schools are closed. Mr. Uh, Governor Science Denier. All right, let's bring on the moist line, folks. It's pretty simple. You leave a voicemail. It's very high tech. We collect them. We have to edit a lot of them. We play back a collection in two parts, one now and one in about 30 minutes. one moist 86 Hey, this is John. And this is Ken. We're so excited to hear from you. It's about time. T-R-I-C. Trick, trick, trick. That's the acronym for... Oh, wait a minute. That's racist. I'm so... Oh, my gosh. I'm so sorry. What I meant to say, the recall is coming. T-R-I-C. But I can't say trick. That's racist. Sorry. But the recall is coming. Recall is coming. All you California that are coming up here to Washington to get away from the idiot governor, guess what? Joke's on you when you move to Washington because our idiot governor is the slobbering fanboy of Gavin Newsom. Why do they call it Friday? They call it Friday because by the end of the week, your brain is burnt out. It's Friday. John Cobell for governor. John Cobell for uh, governor. Sure. John Cobell for governor. John Cobell for governor. I think you should do it. It is mind-blowing that the COVID vaccine program, operating less than three months, is bulletproof to the point of making sure the wrong people don't get the shot, yet the, the EDD, over 60 years old, still can't get the right people paid. A friend of mine, his wife divorced him, and in court for evidence, she produced the memory foam on the mattress. That guy, Gloria, man, I'm really kind of disappointed, last slash surprised. You didn't get it, man. You didn't see. This cat came out of San Francisco, and he's the worst piece of This Gloria guy, don't you see, they, uh, he went out on a rail, you know, and that guy's a bad guy. And you have dogs, right? You get those treatments for, like, fleas and ticks, and inside the packaging, it'll give you, like, the little life cycle of a flea, and there's, like, the little egg, and then there's the little larva, and then there's the little this, and then there's the bug, and then, the, and then it all cycles back again. That's <laughs> what these idiot, useless creatures on the planet that identify as politicians. They're just fleas. We live in a neighborhood where there are a couple of houses with 10 plus more people living there, and every f***ing kid has a f***ing cell phone. So take away the cell phone, buy them a laptop, and let them get an education. <laughs> How are you supposed to get the second dose if you can't even get the first dose? I mean, these people that are getting the second dose, how are they doing it? And you can't even get the first one. That woman who used Gorilla Glue in her hair, now this yes. might sound stereotypical, but she really needs to dye her hair blonde. Hello? 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 Why do I you answer the phone? Yeah, that Florida, you know, water contamination. Of course, we all know who did it. It was Donald Trump. He's so pissed off about losing the election, he poisoned that water. I just love it. You got some f***ing idiot who sprays Gorilla Glue in her hair. Now she's going to use that to hit the gravy train by suing him for a million bucks. Have you guys noticed that businessman John Cox runs for California political office and loses on almost a yearly basis? 
You know what these teachers are doing now? If you put on social media that you want your kid to go back to school, they don't just tell you that it's dangerous. They give you every single talking point that the union gives them. It's not even a real conversation with a real person. It's just an automatic copy and paste, shut up, you want kids to die. This is so ridiculous. These people are so vicious that they just don't want to teach our children anymore. When are we going to do something about it? What the hell is it with these people? Yeah, your breakfast burrito was missing. That's your fault for putting your faith in fast food workers. You get what you get. Expect nothing less. Hello, Jordan Ken. It is I, your great friend, Throughput. And I'd like to let you both know that because of equity, I have met the moment, and now I am sober. Thank you for leaving your message. Please hang up. Goodbye. Collection of some words. There you go. Throughput. Sober. Met the moment. Oh, uh, there you go. It's round one from the Moistline crowd. They'll be back in about 20 minutes. But when we come back, Svetlana and the team of mob members are here to help us throw somebody in the dumpster. Who yes. will it be? A new character. Never before tossed into the dumpster. No, I don't and think even mentioned on the show. I don't know. Get some uh, get some ear protection for yourself. You might want to put on some uh, mufflers. Uh, Not on stockings. <laughs> John and Ken, KFI. It's time. For John and Ken to throw a hack in a dumpster. John and Ken Show. John Cobell, Ken Shampoo, KFI, AM 640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. All right. Uh, If you're a parent, I don't know how you're putting up with this. Uh, You've got all the major political figures in California absolutely refusing to open the schools in many areas and you have the teachers unions adamantly refusing to teach even though the science community has given the all clear go ahead and teach even if nobody's vaccinated yeah today the cdc issued new guidelines on reopening schools but they made it clear that this can happen without full vaccinations and it can happen safely even it said In places described as hotter zones with higher case levels, it can still happen. Now, today Newsom appeared in San Francisco and, oh my God, I don't know if we should even play the clip, but he was asked about the school reopening. Well, he really does a dance. I mean, he's full of diarrhea to begin with whenever he speaks. Yeah, we, we should play it. People should hear what this is. But he just kind of talks in circles. Because if you're if you're a parent and your kid can't go to school and hasn't been in school for a year... I don't know why you wouldn't sign the recall immediately. And all you want to know is, since the CDC announced today that everybody can go back to school, New York Times has a story. They 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 polled 175 uh, disease, pediatric disease specialists. 86% of them said, no, you don't need a vaccine. No one needs a vaccine to go back to school safely. I don't know what else people want, okay? The science is settled, as they say. So we have a bunch of science deniers here, and we know what the issue is. Uh, the teachers' union is either holding out for a ransom or the teachers just they just don't want to get off the couch. It's one of the two. And uh, they're trying to shake Newsom down for money. And uh, Newsom and Garcetti, Butner, they're all scared. They're all bent over, clutching their ankles. 
They're afraid that their future political careers will be destroyed if they don't get the, the money from the teachers. So, it, you know, it, it's, it's, we live in a political bribe culture. And All right, so here's his diarrhea on the reopening of the schools. Uh, my firm belief is our youngest kids can safely get back into school. And, and get it done. And that's what this plan ultimately is focused on. We put real money up. We want to focus on cohorts, K to 2, K cohorts. to 6. That's our prioritization. I respect collective bargaining, and I've learned as someone as a practitioner in the space, doesn't what? intellectualize, Which you want to go you fast, you can homes. go alone. But do you want to go far, you got to go together. And so from my humble perspective, that's foundational. Foundational? Creating real incentives, expectation, putting real money up. What? And setting the tone that really focuses on getting those younger kids back. A practitioner? Is the thrust of where we're going with the lecture. In this space? As a practitioner in this space, what could that possibly mean? What does that mean? A normal person would Translation, say... Translation, the union has them by the... A normal person would say, the CDC, the CDC gave unambiguous guidelines today to open all the schools. All the schools, by the way. Middle and high school as, as well. Unambiguous direction. A normal person says, we got the go-ahead from Joe Biden's CDC, and we're opening a week from Monday. That's what a normal person would do. Instead, he's babbling about cohorts, and mm. as a participant in this space, I... What? The unions control me. That's what I got out of it. Yep. I got to respect the collective bargaining process. Yeah. Meaning... I can't do anything until I get these unions to come and agree. Now, when it comes to the hack for the dumpster, this is a new one to the John and Ken show. Although over the years, we have sparred and fought with the local teachers union for the L.A. Unified School District. They're known as United Teachers Los Angeles. The president now is Cecily Mayart Cruz. And a week ago, she did a Facebook Live event. And here's what she spouted. So the claims that the transmission does not occur in schools are often based on studies that share a vital flaw. Incomplete contact tracing due to a lack of surveillance testing of often asymptomatic students. Saying no cases were found when systematic testing is not happening particularly when community spread is high, is She's not a foundation on which to base that's not a what, widespread that's not what the return says, to lady. in-person instruction. Incorrect. We must take politics out of this pandemic. <laughs> Let's listen to scientists. Yeah, right we, now, we several CDC. epidemiologists several. have been listen calling for a national lockdown she with found real financial support Here, uh, to allow people to stay she wants us to go back in our homes for a month because of these new COVID-19 strains, which spread easily and rapidly. It's time to address some of the harmful oh rhetoric out there uh -oh, as we well. Oh, Everyone fun? is entitled yeah. to their opinion, go ahead. but we must be yeah. respectful of yeah. each other. Yeah. There are some lines being crossed. Use the shut up it's words. News anchors, 
radio hosts, oh. or frustrated parents who oh. are spewing hate, ah. racism, yes. and misogynistic behavior. Yes. So the claims that yeah. the transmission Please. does she hit not the triple occur crown of in shut up words. Let's get her in there. Get, get her. On studies Come on, Bob. They're, they're, they're triple flaw. masked right now. Incomplete we'll have you contact know. Wait, nylons? Nylons over their head. of surveillance testing. It is. Slam the door on it. There you go. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, you got him. Really lo- oh, man. Double lock. <laughs> oh, she tried to get out of her car. Yeah, I know. She's not used to the dumpster. It was no, really uncomfortable. No, she wanted. She's Radio host. What? Radio host. Oh, yeah. Hate, racism, misogyny. Blah, blah, blah. I know, the usual stuff. All right, that is the president of the United Uh, Teachers Los Angeles going in the dumpster. Yeah, and just for the record, the New York Times said the Centers for Disease Control urged that K-12 through schools be reopened and offered a comprehensive science-based plan for doing so speedily. Mm. The new guidelines highlight the growing body of evidence that schools can open safely if they put in layered mitigation measures. Even... Even when students lived in communities with high transmission rates. Yeah, I said that. They said it can even be done in high transmission rate communities. Middle and high school students can attend school safely at most lower levels of transmission or even at higher levels if schools put into effect weekly testing of staff and students. So they're saying that everybody can go back to school K through 12, whether you're in a low transmission or a high transmission state. I will end with this. Dr. Rochelle Walensky is director of the CDC. Joe Biden appointed her. The CDC's yeah. operational strategy is grounded in science and the best available evidence. All right, coming up next, Moist Line Round 2. John and Ken, KFI. John and Ken Show, John Covell, Ken Shampoo, KFI AM640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. The John and Ken Show and our cohorts. All right, we're going to wrap it up. That means one last visit on this Friday afternoon from our friends, the Moist Line people. All you do is leave your voicemail on this toll-free line, and you might make it here. one 877 Hey, this is John. And this is Ken. We're so excited to hear from you. It's about time. Higher gas prices. Look left, look right. It's all around you. Or just look at the ticker at the price of oil. It's all brought to you by Joe Biden. Hey, you guys remember the count from Sesame Street? Hello, kids. Today we're going to count how many Donald Trump border walls we can buy with the EBD fraud money. Ready? One Donald Trump border wall. Two Donald Trump border wall. Three Donald Trump border wall. Four Donald Trump border walls. Ah, ah, ah. I'm John Ken. It's Gavin. I'm Mark Newsom. And I'm hoping that you can donate to one of my favorite restaurants here up near Napa Valley. It's called the French Laundry. Is that a little going through really tough times right now? So any sort of donation will help. The only way you're getting the teachers back to work is if you cut their pay off. The day you quit paying them to sit at home, they'll be back to work. Yeah, about Gavin Newsom. In his latest news conference, he's like, well, we can't live our normal life until we completely get rid of a virus. We don't do this with the flu. You don't do it with the cold. You don't do it with anything else. But this thing, he wants everybody to live a paranoid life. I 
damn year into this thing, which part of this doesn't he get? If that super train there is going to run on just one rail, is it going to have a tendency to tip over when people lean to one side? I'm just saying. Hi, you guys. You are very appreciated. Thank you for all your logic and thinking. The city of Long Beach passed an ordinance to, to Kroger stores, Ralph stores, to pay the extra $4 an hour. But what yes. I didn't tell you was they also reduced the hours. So the employees are actually making less money now. That should be investigated. In my opinion, they should just have people giving shots in the parking lots all over the place, at the drugstores or wherever. Anybody who walks up, you get a shot. You get a shot. You get a shot. Hey, Pelosi, if you couldn't get a stimulus bill through because Trump was stopping it, then how come it's already February 10th now and we still don't have a stimulus? You know, Joe Biden... uh wanted Larry Flint to lie in state in the Capitol Rotunda. Yeah, all this double mask stuff. Why can't they just build a better mask? Hey, shalom, shalom. I'm calling here from Israel. We are all vaccinated here. We are eating in the restaurants, very good, on the beaches, looking at the girls. Here we have real men running the country. You know, we have Bibi Netanyahu, and then you have, uh, you know, this girly man you have over there. Newsome, gruesome, uh, Garcetti, girly, girly man. Girly. You know, they take care of their hair better than they take care of the people. Come to Israel. And there's Uncle Joe. He's a moving kind of slow with the vaccine. So I go and I take a walk, and I see this little girl with her mom. And the little girl starts pointing, screaming, Mom, 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 look, it's a giraffe. I go and I look, it was a dog. Will somebody open these damn schools? <laughs> 1.5 million and it's easy. How do we get rid of the legislature? Thank you for leaving your yeah. message. Please hang up. We could recall Goodbye. the entire legislature. Uh, yes, everyone should be recalled. Yep. Living under this supermajority of democratic rule, this is what you have. What a mess. All right, there you go. The Moist Line, one eight seven seven Moist eighty six. Conway should be recalled. Yeah, that's oh, right. Ding dong. Ding dong. <clears throat> so he got the fifteen uh, one point five million votes or uh, uh, signatures, signatures, right? Yeah. Wow, yeah. man. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about it. You know, once you're recalled, you really your your political career is over. You know, because all oh, the money yeah. dries up, all yeah. the you know, all, all your you know your fame and all that crap dries up. Yeah, you're stained now. Right. <laughs> All right, we have uh, a doctor coming on, Dr. Michael Obang, and he's the guy that took uh, uh, Tessica Brown. Remember she put that that, uh, glue in her hair? Oh, yeah. This is the guy that got that glue out of her hair after a month. It was in her hair for a month. You're having him on the show? Yeah, he's coming on. Wow, good yeah. for you. All right, I got a, a couple of questions about glue myself. Did, did you use that method? Your hair looks really good. Thank you so much. No, no this it's is, much thicker. This I haven't just, seen you in months. Thank you very much. It's no, glued on. This yeah. is, uh, <laughs> Can I tug on it? This is a little more expensive than uh, Gorilla Glue. <laughs> uh, but we also have the, uh, I, um, what's his name, Steve Gregory. He'll come on with us, oh, uh, hopefully. Who knows? And then David Vasse with the Dodgers to figure out how many people are going to be sitting in that stadium when the Dodgers open, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah it's right. getting close. Yeah, it's yeah. right around the corner. Um, so I just read they're going to allow some fans at spring training in Arizona. Is that right? Yeah, yeah Arizona's wide open. And, and yes. Florida looks like, you know, 1958. Uh, it's unbelievable. <laughs> and we're all sitting here, you know, you I can't know. go anywhere. <laughs> I know people in both states. I, I walk up uh, and... Up and down the halls here of KFI, I don't see a single person. 
because no. nobody here. Well, everybody got fired. Right. Well, yeah. that's true. Right. You're here, and Eric's here, yeah. and and uh, what's her name? Deborah uh, Mark is here. <laughs> oh, gee, thanks, Tim. Whatever. Wow. John forgot my name earlier, and now Not that a big comment. You know what? I'm just gonna leave you guys hanging. Right. Well, <laughs> if, if you weren't here so many hours, we'd remember your name. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, wait till she brings you vegan crap. Good. Now, now you're gonna you're gonna have to pay for that for three hours. Yes, he will. That's right. Big dog with her. All right. All right. Um, and uh, that's it. That'll be a big Friday. Show. Yeah, the that, show's that, over, and you can go whatever. That's enough. That, big that ding is dong. enough. All right. Uh, or Conway big is, dog with you. is next. Deborah Mark has the news on KFI and KOST HD2 Los Angeles, Orange County, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. At Delta Community Credit Union, we're not a mega bank. That means we don't grow by gobbling up other banks. Instead, we win people over with better rates for saving and borrowing, along with free checking, personal service, and a great mobile app. So leave the world of ever-changing banks behind and switch to banking that's focused on you. Visit deltacommunitycu.com. Anyone can apply. Delta Community Credit Union. Everything your bank should be. Delta Community is federally insured by the NCUA. Welcome to Virtual Meditation with Shiloh. Uh, hello? Today we're working on forgiving ourselves for not knowing the difference between upload and download speeds before getting cable internet. (laughs) That's oddly specific. Repeat after me. I am not my cable internet. Wait, um, I, I, I don't have cable. I'm not a bad... It's my video calls more like video stalls. Uh, hey, Shiloh, there's something... I will get AT&T fiber. <laughs> and I will switch classes until you do. Slow upload speeds? You're not a bad person. You just need better internet. With 20 times faster upload speeds, AT&T Fiber delivers a faster internet experience than cable. Get AT&T Fiber with no annual contract. Limited availability in select areas. Call 1-877-ONLY-ATT. Check eligibility at att.com slash getfiber. Based on combined internet 1,000 wired up and download capacity versus major cable providers, one gig service with uploads of 35 megabits per second. Speeds vary, not guaranteed. Restrictions apply. Thanks for listening. This TED Talk features mayor of the city of Stockton, California, Michael Tubbs. Recorded live at TED 2019. So I know for sure there's at least one thing I have in common with dentists. I absolutely hate the holiday of Halloween. Now, this hatred stems not from a dislike of cavities, nor was it a lifetime in the making. Rather, this hatred stems from a particular incident that happened nine years ago. Nine years ago, I was even younger. I was 20 years old, and I was an intern in the White House, the other White House. And my job was to work with mayors and councils nationwide. November 1st, 2010 began just like any other day. I turned on the computer, went on Google, and prepared to write my news clips. Um, I was met with a call from my mother, which isn't out the norm. My mom likes to text, call, email, Facebook, Instagram all day. Um, So I I answered the phone and expected to hear maybe some church gossip or maybe something from World Star Hip Hop she had discovered. Um, But but, but when I answered the phone, I was met with a tone that was unlike anything I had ever heard from my mother. My mother's loud, but she spoke in a hush still muffled tone that conveyed a a sense of sadness. And as she whispered, she said, Michael, 
your cousin Donnell um, was murdered last night on Halloween at a house party in, in Stockton. And like far too many people in this country, particularly from communities like mine, particularly that look like me, I spent the better part of a year dealing with anger, rage, nihilism, not a choice to make. The choice was one between action and apathy. Um, the, the choice was what could I do to put purpose to this pain. I spent a year dealing with feelings of survivor's guilt. What was the point of me being at Stanford? What was the point of me being at the White House if I was powerless to help my own family and my own family was dying quite literally? I then begin to feel a little selfish and say, well, what's the point of even trying to make the world a better place? Maybe that's just the way it is. Maybe I'll be smart to take advantage of all the opportunities given to me and make as much money as possible so I'm comfortable and my immediate family is comfortable. Um, but finally, towards the end of that year, I, I realized I wanted to do something. So I made the crazy decision as a senior in college to run for city council. Um, that, that decision was unlikely for a couple reasons, and not just my age. You see, my family is far from a political dynasty. More men in my family have been incarcerated than in college. In fact, as I speak today, my father is still incarcerated. My mother, she had me as a teenager, and government wasn't something we had warm feelings from. You see, it was the government that redlined the neighborhoods I grew up in, full of liquor stores and no grocery stores and with lack of opportunity and, and concentrated poverty. It was the government and politicians that made choices, like the war on drugs and three strikes that have incarcerated far too many people in our country. It was the government and political actors that made the decisions that created the school funding formulas, that made it so the school I went to received less per, less per pupil spending than schools in more affluent areas. So there was nothing about that background that made it likely for me to choose to be involved in being a government actor. And at the same time, Stockton was a very unlikely place. Stockton's my hometown, a city of 320,000 people, but historically it's been a place people run from rather than come back to. It's a city that's incredibly diverse, 35% Latino, 35% white, 20% Asian, 10% African-American, the oldest Sikh temple in North America. But at the time I ran for office, we were also the largest city in the country at that time to declare bankruptcy. At the time I decided to run for office, we also had more murders per capita than Chicago. At the time I decided to run for office, we had a 23% poverty rate, a 17% college attainment rate, and a host of challenges and issues beyond the scope of any 21-year-old. So after I won my election, I did what I usually do when I feel overwhelmed. I realized the problems of Stockton were far bigger than me, and I might need a little divine intervention. So as I prepared for my first council meeting, I went back to some wisdom my grandmother taught me, a parable I think we all know that really constitutes the governing frame we're using to reinvent Stockton today. I remember in Sunday school, my grandmother told me that one time a guy asked Jesus, who was my neighbor? Who is my fellow citizen? Who am I responsible for? And instead of a short answer, Jesus replied with a parable. He said there was a man on a journey walking down Jericho Road. As he was walking down the road, he was beat up. He was left on the side of the road, stripped of all his clothes, everything stolen from him, and left to die. And then a priest came by, saw the man on the side of the road, maybe said a silent prayer, hopes and prayers, our prayers gets better. Maybe saw the man on, on the side of the road and surmised that it was ordained by God for this particular man, this particular group, to be on the side of the road, and there's nothing I could do to change it. 
And then after the priest walked by, maybe a politician walked by, a 28-year-old politician, for example, saw the man on the side of the road and saw how beat up the man was, saw that the man was a victim of violence or fleeing violence, and the politician decided, you know what, instead of welcoming this man in, let's build a wall. Maybe the politician said, maybe this man chose to be on the side of the road, that if he just pulled himself up by his bootstraps, despite his boots being stolen, and got himself back on the horse, he could be successful, and there's nothing I could do. And then finally, my grandmother said a a good Samaritan came by, saw the man on the side of the road, and looked and saw not centuries of hatreds between Jews and Samaritans, looked and saw not his fears reflected, not economic anxiety, not what's going to happen to me because things are changing, but looked and saw a reflection of himself. He saw his neighbor. He saw his common humanity. And he didn't just see it. He did something about it, my grandmother said. He got down on one knee. He made sure the man was okay. And I heard even gave him a room at that nice Fairmont. I think it's the Pan Pacific one. Uh, and, 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 and as I prepared to govern, I, I realized that given the diversity of Stockton, that the first step to making change will be to again answer the same question, who is our neighbor? And realizing that our, our, our destiny as a city was tied up in everyone, particularly those who are left on the side of the road. But then I realized that charity is injustice, that acts of empathy is injustice, that being a good neighbor is necessary but not sufficient, and that was more that had to be done. So looking at the story, I realized that the road, Jericho Road, has a nickname. It's known as the Bloody Pass, the Sin of Red, because the road is structured for violence. This Jericho Road is narrow, it's conducive for ambushing, meaning a man on the side of the road wasn't abnormal, wasn't strange, and in fact, it was something that was structured to happen. It was supposed to happen. And Jonathan Gultang, a peace theorist, talks about structural violence in our society. He says structural violence is the avoidable impairment of basic human needs. Paul Farmer, Dr. Paul Farmer, talks about structural violence and talks about how it's the way our institutions, our policies, our culture creates outcomes that advantage some people and disadvantage others. And and then I realized, much like the road in in Jericho, that in many ways, Stockton in our society has been structured for the outcomes we complain about, that that we should not be surprised when we see that kids in poverty don't do well in school, that we should not be surprised to see wealth gaps and by race and ethnicity. We should not be surprised to see income pay disparities between genders because that's what our society historically has been structured to do, and it's working accordingly. So... So taking this wisdom, I rolled up my sleeves and began to work. And there's three quick stories I want to share that point to not that we figured everything out, not that we have arrived, but we're trending in in the right direction. The first story about the neighbor. When I was a city council member, I was working with one of the most conservative members in our community on opening a health clinic for undocumented people in the south part of the city, and I loved it. And as we opened the clinic, we we had the resolution to sign he presented me a gift. It was an O'Reilly Factor lifetime membership pin. Um, <laughs> mind you, I didn't ask what he did to get such a gift, the, what blood else. I had no idea what, how he got it. But I looked at him and I said, well, how are we working together to open a health clinic to provide free health care 
for undocumented people, and you're an O'Reilly Factor member. And he looked at me and said, Councilman Tubbs, that's, this is for my neighbors. And he's a great example of what it means to be a good neighbor, at least in, in, in that instance. Um, the robbers. So after four years on city council, I decided to run for mayor, realizing that being a part-time councilman wasn't enough to enact the structural changes we need to see um, in Stockton. And it became, it, I came to that conclusion by looking at the data. So my old council district where I grew up is 10 minutes away from a more affluent district. And 10 minutes away in the same city, the difference between zip code 95205 and 95219 in life expectancy is 10 years. 10 minutes away, 4.5 miles, 10 years life expectancy difference, and not because of the choices people are making. Because no one chose to live in an unsafe community where they can't exercise. No one chose to put more liquor stores and grocery stores in their community. No one chose these things, but, but, but that's the reality. I realized as a councilman to enact a structural change I wanted to see where between the same zip codes, there's a 30% difference in rate in unemployment. There's a $75,000 a year difference in, in income that being a councilman was not going to cut it. So that's when I decided to run for mayor. And as mayor, we've been focused on the robbers and the road. Um, so in Stockton, as I mentioned, we historically have had problems with violent crime. In fact, that's why I decided to run for office in the first place. And my first job as mayor was be helping our community to see ourselves, our neighbors, not just in the people victimized by violence, but also by the perpetrators. Uh, we, we realize that, that those who enact pain in our society, those who are committing the homicides and contributing to gun violence, are oftentimes victims themselves. They have high rates of trauma. They have been shot at. They know people who have been shot. And that doesn't excuse their behavior, but it helps explain it. And I said, as a community, we have to see these folks as us, too, that they, too, are our neighbors. So for the past three years... So, so, so for the past three years, we've been working on two strategies, ceasefire and advanced peace, where we give these guys as much attention, as much love from social services, from opportunities, from tattoo removals, in some cases even cash, as they get from law enforcement. And last year, we saw a 40% reduction in homicides and a 30% reduction um, in, in violent crime. And now the road. Uh, I mentioned that my community has a 23% poverty rate. As someone who comes from poverty, it's a personal issue for me. So I decided that we wouldn't just do a program or we wouldn't just do something to go around the edges, but we would call into question the very structure that produces poverty in the first place. So starting in February, we launched a basic income demonstration where for the next 18 months, as a pilot, 130 families randomly selected who live in zip codes at or below the median income of, of the city are given $500 a month. And we're doing this for a couple of reasons. We're doing it because we realize that something is structurally wrong in America when one in two Americans can't afford one $400 emergency. We're doing it because we realize that something is structurally wrong when wages have only increased 6% between 1979 and 2013. We're doing it because we realize something is structurally wrong when people are working two and three jobs doing all the jobs no one in here wants to do and can't pay for necessities like rent, like lights, like health care, like, like child care. Um, so, so, so I would say Stockton, again, we have real issues. I have constituent emails on my phone now about the homelessness issue, uh, about some of the violent crime we're still experiencing. But I would say I think as a society, we would be wise to go back 
to those old Bible stories we were taught growing up and understand that, number one, we have to begin to see each other as neighbors, that when we see someone different from us, they should not reflect our fears, our anxieties, our insecurities, the prejudices we've been taught, our biases, but we should see ourselves. We should see our common humanity. Because I think once we do that, we can do the more important work of restructuring the road. Because again, I understand some listening are saying, well, Mayor Tubbs are talking about structural violence and structural this, but you're on the stage. That the structures can't be too bad if you could come up from poverty, have a father in jail, go to Stanford, work in the White House, and become mayor. And I will respond by saying the term for that is exceptionalism, meaning that we recognize it's exceptional for people to escape the structures, meaning by our very language, we understand that the things we're seeing in our world are by design. I think the task for us as testers and as good people, just people, and moral people is really do the hard work necessary of not just joining hands as neighbors, but using our hands to restructure a road, a road that in this country has been rooted in things like white supremacy, a road like in this country has been rooted in things like misogyny, a road that's not working for far too many people. And I think today, tomorrow, and 2020, we have a chance to change that. So as I prepare to close, I started with a story from nine years ago, and I'll end with one. So after my cousin was murdered, I was lucky enough to go on the Freedom Rides with some of the original Freedom Riders. And they taught me a lot about restructuring the road. And one guy in particular, Bob Singleton, asked me a question that I'm going to leave with us today. He were going through Anniston, Alabama, and he said, Michael? And I said, yes, sir. He said, I was arrested on August 4th, 1961. Now, why is that day important? And I said, well, you were arrested. If you weren't arrested, we wouldn't be on this bus. If we weren't on this bus, we wouldn't have the rights we enjoy. And he rolled his eyes, and he said, no, son. He said, on that day, Barack Obama was born. And then he said he had no idea that the choice he made to restructure the road would pave the way so a child born as a second-class citizen who wouldn't be able to even get a cup of water out of the counter would have the chance 50 years later to be president. Then he looked at me, and he said, what are you prepared to do today so that 50 years from now, a child born has a chance to be present. And I think, Ted, that's the question before us today. We know things are jacked up. I think what we've seen recently isn't an abnormality, but a, but a reflection of a, of a system that has been structured to produce such crazy outcomes. But I think it's also an opportunity because these structures we inherit aren't acts of God, but acts of men and women. They're policy choices made by politicians like me and, and approved by voters like you. And we have the chance and the awesome opportunity to do something about it. So my question is, what are we prepared to do today so that a child born today, 50 years from now, isn't born in a society rooted in white supremacy, isn't born into a society riddled with misogyny, isn't born into a society riddled with homophobia and transphobia and anti-Semitism and Islamophobia and ableism and all the phobias and isms? What are we prepared to do today so that 50 years from now, we have a road in a society that's structured to, to, to reflect what we hold to be self-evident, that all men, that all women, that even all trans people are created equal and are endowed with their creator with certain inalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thank you. 
For more TED Talks, go to TED.com. Gary Parish, it's Sunday, February 14, 2021. Happy Valentine's Day. Welcome back to the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball podcast, where we sometimes discuss camel fighting, dodo birds, and leaky black. Matt Norlander is here with me, and I want to start with Sunday's return of the Michigan Wolverines. They played a basketball game back on January 22nd. They won it, improved to 13 and 1. Then the program got shut down because of COVID concerns on campus. The Wolverines didn't play for 23 days, a long time away from a basketball court, but they returned Sunday with a game at Wisconsin on America's most watched network, the Network of Stars. Michigan looked rusty early, trailed by as many as 14 points in the first half, down 12 at the break, wasn't great. Second half, different deal. Outscored Wisconsin 40-20. In the final 20 minutes and won 67-59 inside the Cole Center. Dead leg. Would you like to apologize to Tom Brady's alma mater for picking against them this afternoon? It was disrespectful, foolish, and damaging to your reputation as a college basketball prognosticator. No, no. I mean, I'm 26 and 23 on the year. You're now 22 and 27. So I'm I I got this one wrong, but big picture, I'm still riding high. While our listeners, somebody's living in the past. I'm focused on the present. Yeah, <laughs> they're fading your picks and making money, which is all that matters here. So I picked wrong. Was looking nice and comfy at halftime though, and then. God damn, they flipped him over. <laughs> Great job by Michigan there. Huge win. And uh, the Quite committee rightfully. Visual. Yeah. Michigan <laughs> flipping over Wisconsin. They did, though. They capsized him. No doubt about it. And uh, listen, the committee had him in number three when the bracket reveal came out Saturday afternoon. It was uh, the rightful spot. It wasn't too bullish. Michigan goes out and proves the committee right. Four of the teams that were in that top 16 reveal wound up losing this weekend, but it was not Michigan. I thought we were going to get five. Uh, no, no Surrey. Defensively, they were wonderful. Held Wisconsin to 20 points in the second half. And it was like 0.62, 0.63 points per possession in the second half for Wisconsin, which made only one of its 13 three-point attempts, while Michigan on the whole just looked wonderful. Isaiah Livers had a game-high 20, Hunter Dickinson 11 points, 15 boards, and five blocks, uh, continuing his campaign as a top-five freshman in America, and he stepped up big in the second half. I thought it was extremely impressive. The first half was completely acceptable for Michigan, considering the long layoff, and then Frankly, Juwan Howard and that team got itself together and knocked off a Wisconsin team. I did say this on with you on HQ after the game. To me, I would put Wisconsin in kind of the same bucket as Missouri right now. Teams that are going to get to the NCAA tournament, they'll probably have uh, a single digit next to their name when they get there. But too much evidence at this point for me to really trust them. Big picture going forward. To me, the game was more about Michigan winning the way it did in the second half, and it was super impressive. And that's the third best team in America right now. Just in case it's not clear um, that I'm being somewhat facetious, there's nothing uh, ridiculous about picking Wisconsin to win this game. The game was a pick 'em. And obviously, after the first 20 minutes, no, it looked it, like the best. It was ridiculous. I, I know. I don't care what the line was. It was ridiculous. Okay. I'm owning it. No facetiousness needed. Okay. I, I was an idiot. Well, here's the thing um, we talked about it pregame on CBS Sports HQ. 
and we were asked, like, what do we expect? And it's like, who knows? I mean, like, there's evidence that cuts both ways on how teams respond to being off for three weeks. I mean, we've never done this, to my knowledge, in a season, you know, where teams could just be off three weeks. And so for Michigan, it was 23 days. So you go, okay, what does that mean? What have other teams done? Well, Gonzaga went on a COVID pause, came back and bombed Iowa, no problem. And then there's like St. Louis went on a COVID pause, came back, took back-to-back quadrant three losses. Didn't look nothing like the same team. So you just don't know. And then for Michigan, it was actually interesting. They come out first 20 minutes, look terrible. Wisconsin shot 54% from the field, 71% from three. 100% from the free throw line. And then the second half, Michigan holds that exact same team to 20 points in 20 minutes. Wisconsin was up 53-48 with 7.27 left. And then Michigan closed on a 19-6 run over the final 7.26. The score was tied 59-59 inside of two minutes. Michigan closed on an 8-0 run in the final 149. Hunter Dickinson, 11 points, 15 boards, just a monster. Incredible footwork dominated Wisconsin front court players. And I'm with you. I had, I think we talked about this on Friday. I've had people, it might be the same person, you know, tweet me every once in a while with the top 25 and one, like you have to drop Michigan. Uh, they haven't played in forever. And I was just never going to do it. Like, I'm not going to punish somebody for being on a COVID pause. And I was, um, pleased that the NCAA Tournament Selection Committee didn't punish Michigan either for being on a COVID pause. They were a one seed in the bracket reveal uh, on Saturday. But I think our buddy Rob Doster has gotten into this um, habit of making a point that there is no third best team in college basketball. But I, and, but I respectfully, I would argue there is. And it is Michigan. You just ain't seen them play in a while. But they're now 8-1 and one in the first two quadrants with the lone loss coming in quad one at Minnesota. They're now third at Ken Palm with an adjusted efficiency margin of plus 29.40. Do they belong in the same conversation with Gonzaga and Baylor? Maybe not. But is there a third best team in college basketball? Yes. Who is it? It's Michigan. Yeah, and if you want to – we have to say Michigan right now. What's interesting, and, I'll, and when the – Stuff refreshes on Monday morning. Strength of record, which is a resume-based metric there. It actually has Ohio State ahead of Michigan coming into Sunday. I would think Michigan's going to jump there. But I'll be interested to see. But it's got to be Michigan 3, and then it's got to be Ohio State 4. And then I don't know what you want to do after that. I mean, you know, Illinois did walk into Pinnacle Bank. Got a win. So it walked in. I mean, did, did that walk involve a bit of a scenic route? Sure. But walked in. Had I don't know, we've reached reached the point here where I had like twenty people in my mentions when that came. I can't tell you how many Pinnacle Bank uh tweets I had I had locked and loaded. I was it was Friday night, I was in my office by myself, I was locked and loaded for a Pinnacle Bank upset. I was hashtag Carol Hoyberg. I was oh, I boy. was ready to go and it just it just it didn't we happen. Disumud. Disumud in a major, major way. And what's wild about that is that Nebraska, like they came close, and then they win on Sunday. We don't need to dedicate any time to this other than this statement here. They lose at home at Pinnacle Bank, which they always do, and then they win at Penn State to get their first win in twenty-seven Big Ten games. They went on the road. They went on the road. Nebraska. Well, happy for you. You got that win. But yes, Michigan three, Ohio State four, Illinois five. And I would put, I think that's, I would, I think that's how I would uh, rank out the top five right now in terms of overall resume. And if anything, um, it should give uh, 
fans of those teams a lot of optimism because I think, especially after this weekend, Michigan winning the way that it did, Ohio State again winning as we expected, not even close against Indiana. Uh, Big Ten's got a great shot, a great shot at having two of the uh, two of the four number one seats when we get to Selection Sunday. I mentioned that Michigan's adjusted efficiency margin updated is now at plus 29.40. That is the third best in the country. Gonzaga now, we had this time where it was Baylor was number one, and then it was like they were within a point of each other. Now it's Gonzaga number one at plus 37.64. Baylor is plus 34.93. Gonzaga's adjusted efficiency margin at this moment. If the season ended today, and it might, you never know, we're in a pandemic. If the season ended today, Gonzaga would have the highest adjusted efficiency margin in the history of the Kimpom database. But it's not the highest in the midst of a season. We've had two teams before actually crack plus 40, according to Pomeroy. The 99 Duke team, and I'm not even going to trivia time here, 99 Duke and 01 Duke, both in the middle of their seasons, got plus 40 in efficiency margin. Goes to prove that doing it once you get to tournament play is really how uh, you got to try and settle. But Gonzaga's got a shot here, trying to get that all-time Kentucky record. And Baylor's just suffering at the moment from not having played any uh, any games. So there's a little bit of separation there with uh, with Gonzaga and Baylor. As previously detailed on the pod, and I had this in the court report about a week and a half ago, and this is still true, Gonzaga and Baylor separating from Michigan from an efficiency margin standpoint is still pretty wide. And In fact, right now it would be the second largest margin between the second and third team pre-NCAA tournament in the history of Ken Palm there. But good on Michigan, 14-1 and coming off a 23-day pause and winning the way it did defensively. Just huge Wisconsin. You got issues. I don't think I can trust this team. I did once call this team the most reliable team in the Big Ten. Again, I got to own it. Idiot right here. Not going to run from it. Uh, Michigan's next game now is scheduled to be on Thursday against Rutgers. What remains to be seen since we're kind of hitting on this uh, motif here right now, GP, is they lost the Illinois game from a few days ago. That got postponed. And if I'm the Big Ten, I'm doing everything I can to make sure that Michigan and Illinois play each other because the game was scheduled. These are clearly, you know, two number one type teams for in terms of seed lines and stuff. And so for the benefit of schedule equity, equity, Big Ten tournament seeding, overall NCAA tournament seeding, and Illinois fans, frankly, are desperate to play that game. I hope that we get Wolverines, Illini in the regular season at some point. It's a matter of if and where they'll squeeze it in. So bottom line, uh, Michigan returns, looks bad for 20 minutes, looks great in the second 20 minutes, wins, improves to 14-1. and one. Welcome back to the sport, Wolverines. It's nice to see you again. There are a handful of power conference teams that are overachieving relative to preseason expectations and are now in the top 10 of my top 25 and one. I'm specifically talking about Ohio State, Alabama, and Oklahoma. All three won this weekend. We're going to get into that next, but first, check this out. This episode is supported by Personal Capital. Remember how we were all going to use the lockdown to finally get totally ripped? Well, you can still whip your finances into shape with Personal Capital's free financial tools. See all your accounts in one place, plan for retirement, monitor your investments, and uncover hidden IRA fees. All from your phone, tablet, or laptop. Download the Personal Capital app or visit personalcapital.com to get these free, powerful financial tools. Personal Capital, there's no place like financial confidence. Support for the following passion comes from Lexus, celebrating the obsessions that drive us to go all in. From enthusiasts of all different spaces. My name is Jamel Dean. I'm from Bakersfield, California, and I'm a musician. 
I started off playing music since I was a little kid by pulling out pots and pans. I'm obsessed with rhythm, harmony, and how they're organized to tell stories and create entire sonic worlds. Jamel's passion for music goes beyond stringing together sounds. It's how he connects with others. Every tone has a certain oscillation or rhythm and feeling which can change depending on the context it's in. Music is harmony, just as life. And his advice for other musicians in the making? To listen to as much music as they can, to write as much music as they can, and to keep doing what they're doing, no matter what. At Lexus, they've gone all in on their passion, designing a pure sports sedan, the new Lexus IS. Designed to look as thrilling as it is to drive. Learn more at Lexus.com slash IS. So there are a handful of power conference teams that are overachieving relative to preseason expectations and are now in the top 10 of my top 25 and one. Ohio State, Alabama, Oklahoma specifically. All three won this weekend. Ohio State pounded Indiana, 78-59. Alabama beat Georgia's brains in, 115-82. Oklahoma edged West Virginia, 91-90 in overtime. None of these teams mm-hmm. were picked higher than fifth in their league in the preseason. But Ohio State is now fourth in the top 25-1 and one after being picked seventh in the Big Ten preseason poll and only being ranked 23rd in the preseason AP poll. Alabama, now 7th in the top 25-1 and one after being picked 5th in the SEC preseason poll and only being 4th among others receiving votes, so 29th in the preseason AP poll. And Oklahoma is now 8th in the top 25-1 and one after being picked 6th in the Big 12 preseason poll and getting 0 votes in the preseason AP poll. Norlander, I think you would agree with me that if Gonzaga's Mark Few and or Baylor Scott Drew go undefeated, they have to be the national coach of the year. So let's take them, set them to a side. If you couldn't go with Few or Drew, would you pick coach of the year right now from the list of Chris Holtman, Nate Oates, and Lon Kruger? And if so, who would you go with? Um... Uh, I actually just had to send in my finalist for coach of the year uh, or not finalist, but I guess mid season, whatever it is. And I had to give 15 and obviously all these guys were on the list. Uh, if I can't be the top two, I think, I think Holtman would get my vote right now. He, guy just doesn't get enough credit. You know, <laughs> Chris Holtman does not get enough credit and long Kruger, by the way, not oh, that, dude, that was, behind. that was the one that started popping this weekend. Not Lon that. Kruger, you know, I don't think enough people talk about long Kruger. I'm like, do it. We're here to fix that right now, right? But now. by the way, it's the people like who was that? Was that Gottlieb? It who was. tweeted that. It was. Okay, like if people don't talk enough about Lionel Kruger, well, you're one of the people. <laughs> you've got a voice. You're you you've got a prominent voice in college basketball. Talk about him. Oh my, oh my God, Parrish. Hmm. Whoa. Okay. I got this text that just came in. Hold on. This is a power. Oh my is it a God. high major coach? This is a power conference coach. You're not going to believe this. Hmm. Says, did you watch the Michigan game today? I think this team can win the national championship. Oh, hold on. Hold on a sec. Let me put that in my notes, please. Do we need to stop this podcast right now and go back and record it from the start? And and make it clear from the jump that we also believe that Michigan could could theoretically win the national championship, being the third best team in the country at this moment. That's big. That's big stuff right there. That's that is that's something else. That's something else. 
How about that Lon Kruger? No one talks about him. I would pick, <laughs> and I don't mean it specifically about uh, about Doug or you know. I, I think Goodman Goodman was the Chris Holtman one. Yeah. It's just like we are the people who talk about these things. If you don't think somebody gets talked about enough, talk about them. Exactly. You know what? I used to think Terry Teagle doesn't get talked about enough. Now I think he maybe gets talked about a little too much sometimes. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Okay, <laughs> good deal. Fair enough. Uh, I would go Holtman uh, by a narrow margin at this point. Ohio State has eight quad one wins. That is the most in America. Gonzaga has seven, and then no one else uh, has more than six right now. Um, So all of these teams were unranked in the preseason AP Top 25, right, GP? That was a stipulation you had with this? No, they were. Ohio State was ranked 23rd in the preseason AP poll. Okay. But now they're in your top 10. Correct. I, I, I just I just pulled three power conference teams that are in my top ten and that will be in the top ten of the AP poll come Monday that are wildly overachieving relative to preseason expectations. None were picked higher than fifth in their own league. Yeah, I go I go Holtman there as a as a refresher. Um, Ohio State was fourth in the committee's reveal. It won, so it did well. Bama was seventh. It won, so it stays good standing. And Oklahoma was 12th. West Virginia was 10th, and then Oklahoma went on to win. Just goes to show you, by the way, um, like that's a fun little deal on Saturday, and it was a some good insight to what they were doing. But four teams lost. Like So much can change, specifically below the one lines. Um, so keep that in mind. I will share a quick tidbit that I also had on HQ and have in my Sunday takeaways. If you are a fan of one of the four one seeds, then you should have a lot of optimism going forward because every single year we've done this in February, which started in 2017, three of the four one seeds in February were one seeds on Selection Sunday, and that was supposed to be the pattern last year as well. The only flip was... I think Dayton hopped in instead of San Diego State, and that was the change. But otherwise, Gonzaga, Baylor, and Kansas were one seeds in February last year. They obviously would have been one seeds going in uh, had we had a 2020 tournament. And the three times that we did have a tournament, uh, one of the one seeds wound up winning. In 17, Carolina, 18, Villanova, 19, uh, Virginia. So, Gonzaga, Baylor, Michigan, Ohio State fans, recent history would just kindly nudge and suggest that you've got a really healthy shot at winning the national championship this year. The Buckeyes right now, I wish a high major coach. I, I, I listen, I'll okay. take your word for it, but I would prefer if a high major coach could text me that. Uh, well, listen, the night's still young, sweetie. So we'll have to, uh, we'll have to wait and uh, wait and see about all of that. But Oklahoma, Oklahoma is probably the one to like, I, I put this in my takeaways. I, if they continue to get these really high-level wins, then they're not going to be like this Final Four sleeper. You might still be able to get in on them now. Like I haven't checked the latest futures if you're into laying down some cheddar on national championship winners. But 17th in the net heading into Sunday GP. Oklahoma, 5-5 five and five in Quad 1. It doesn't have a loss outside of Quad 1, and it has really good high-level wins. I would I would feel like that would be a, a, a true team with real value that you can get right now and could be kind of a, a final four dark horse. Cause they're always just a little bit off the radar there. And they're unquestionably, unquestionably a top 10 team. Bama continue. I mean, Bama's the only, I think I said this on the pod before Bama's the only team you can trust in the sec. I mean, Tennessee goes down to LSU and we'll get to that in a few, but Bama's just the only one right now from a bracket perspective that we could say from that league that you can trust to make the second weekend, which is, which is, Kind of strange considering, like, it did have three teams in the top 16 reveal, but I'm, I'm sorry. Like, I just I can't trust anyone else aside from the Tide right now in the Southeastern Conference. I'm picking Alabama to go to the Final Four as long as it's not in the same region with Gonzaga or Baylor. 
It's my favorite team. Now, Bama was in the region with Gonzaga. I'm, I'm, if memory serves correct, right? So that's, that's that's a problem as of now. But yeah, I hear you. If they're not, if they don't wind up getting there, I can see that. And what they did on Saturday was exactly what I've talked about. Why they're the type? They're not only the type of team that can go to a Final Four. They're the type of team. There are some teams that I genuinely believe, even if they play their best, they cannot beat Gonzaga. And even if they play their best, they cannot beat Baylor. I mean, there's some top. 15 teams that I think, even if they play their best, they're not beating the Zags and they're not beating the Bears. I think Alabama could beat either one if it played its best. And the reason is exactly what we saw on Saturday and exactly what we've talked about for, it feels like over a month now. They are so committed to a very specific style of play that when they play well, they can bomb you. They're now, I don't know if you noticed this, number one in adjusted defensive efficiency. Top defense in America belongs to the Alabama Crimson Tide. They're now ninth in tempo. So the style of play is just dangerous. They're super fast. They really guard you, and they're going to launch, on average, 33s on you. If they're hot, you're dead. If they're not, they can still beat you. And against Georgia, they were hot. 18 of 30 from three, 60% win the game by 33 points. That is scary, even if you're Gonzaga Baylor, if you know this team is going gonna, is gonna, uh, gonna to get up and down the court with you. You know they're going to guard you. They're better defensively than you are. I mean, at least statistically speaking at this moment. And they're going to take 33s. And if, and, and if they are hot, it's hard to keep up. That, that is the most dangerous team in the country, not named Gonzaga or Baylor, is in my opinion Alabama. Uh, dangerous. It doesn't mean necessarily that I think they should be ranked third, or I think they should. Be I hear what you're right saying, now. though. I got. I'm you. just saying if if they play well, there are there are there are teams that if they play well, I don't think they're good enough to win the national championship. If Alabama plays well, like if Alabama gets to a Final Four and then plays well, an A level game, it can beat Baylor and it can beat Gonzaga. Yeah, by the way, uh, Region 1 in that bracket reveal, super fun from the top four perspective. Gonzaga, Bama, Oklahoma, who we're just talking about, top 10 team, and then Iowa as the, as the four seed, and we know its top end on offense can be as good as just about anyone in the country there. So that's, you know, that's not probably not how it's going to wind up. Uh, we're one month from Selection Sunday, by the way, but uh, it's, certainly, uh, it's certainly plenty of fun to think about. Uh, just for some context, I did go look at the preseason Kimpom rankings and compare them to where they are right now with Ohio State, Alabama, Oklahoma, the three schools we're talking about. Ohio State was preseason number 10 at Kimpom. So the AP voters had them low. I also had them low, although I had them 18th in the preseason top 25 and one. So I didn't have them as low as the AP poll, but I had them too low. Ohio State was 10th in the preseason. They're sixth right now at Kimpom. So four spots better than they started. Oklahoma was 32nd in the preseason at Ken Palm, and they are up to 21st right now, so 11 spots better. Alabama was 46th in the preseason at Ken Palm, up to number eight, so 38 spots better. If For whatever it's worth, if you go by the Ken Palm ratings, the team that has overachieved most out of these three teams we're discussing is Nate Oates, Alabama Crimson Tide. There we go. All right, what else from the weekend? Let's do a little let's do a little tour here, GP. What's kind of sticking out to you? Yeah, well, okay. Well, there was lots of notable results. I'll just pop through them real quick. You can take it wherever you want to take it. As previously mentioned, Illinois won at Pinnacle Bank on Friday night. That's a quad three win. But boy, it feels like a quad one to me. 
Feels like a quad one to me. Creighton bombed Villanova one by six time, uh, 16 inside the CHI Health Center Omaha. Michael Carter-Williams' brother had 25. Virginia insured UNC could not celebrate maskless for the second straight Saturday. They beat the Tar Heels by 12. Arkansas won at Missouri. I moved the Hogs into the top 25 and won. Iowa beat Michigan State by 30 at the Breslin Center. Tom Izzo described himself as, quote, embarrassed. Tennessee lost at LSU by double digits. Five-star freshmen didn't play well. That was a problem. And Loyola, Chicago, and Drake split a couple of games this weekend. Loyola, Chicago blew the Bulldogs out on Saturday. Drake won in OT on Sunday afternoon. Take it where you want to take. All right. Um, in order of what you just mentioned there, we touched on Illinois. I have a th- I'll put the link in the pod description. Um, let me just ask you this real quick. Io DeSumo versus Luca Garza, Big Ten Player of the Year. It's closer than people think. Yeah. I'm still leaning toward Luca Garza, yeah. but DeSumo was awesome. Come on. Inside Pinnacle Bank. He- One of the all-time great performances by a visitor inside Pinnacle Bank. Without a doubt. Right now, here's how they stack up. Garza's at 24.5 points a game. DeSumo's at 21.7. Rebound-wise, Garza's got him 8.4 to 6.2. Assists, it's not close, though. DeSumo's 5.1. Garza's 1.8. And then Luca's at 1.6 swats a game. DeSumo's 1.1 swipes. From two-point range and three-point range, Garza's got it. 59.3 to DeSumo's 51. And then from beyond the arc, it's 43.1 for Garza and 40.3 from DeSumo. If you need those stats again, you can click on through the pod description and read as you listen to us talk here. I think it's a real discussion, though. Um, first of all, DeSumo is the first player since Evan Turner in the Big Ten to be averaging 25-5 and five at least. When Turner did it, he won National Player of the Year. And really, for all intents and purposes, if DeSumo's chasing and nipping at Garza's heels in the Big Ten, then he's doing also the same at the national level. And Illinois ranks higher in the conference standings, ranks higher in all of the metrics there. It's uh, To me, it's, it's Garza right now, but it actually is a real race with three weeks to go. You agree? I do agree, and I do. I could envision Io being Big Ten Player of the Year, and also by if you're Big Ten Player of the Year in this season, you got a chance to be National Player of the Year by definition. And if Iowa, some of this is team related, as we've talked about before. If you want to be National Player of the Year, you you usually need to be a statistical monster on a very good team. Obi Toppin was that last season for Dayton. A great player, statistical monster for a team that was going to be a number one seed in the NCAA tournament. If Iowa, you know, goes the wrong way in these final few weeks and finds itself, you know, ranked outside of the top 20 or even unranked and Illinois is looking like a one seed and Iowa still performing at this level, absolutely it could, it could flip around. He was, again, awesome on Friday night. He got Illinois' final 10 points in regulation. They were down six with 236 to go. This is when I, I was even – dude. I know. You were, I, you were crafting. Yeah, I know. I was saving pictures of Pinnacle Bank. I had pictures of Pinnacle Bank saved both in the daytime and at night. I mean, I was into it. Man. I spent I, – I wasted too much time studying Pinnacle Bank on Friday night. So Illinois down six with 236 left. He scores the final 10 points in regulation to force overtime. Then he scored their first five points in overtime. So he had 15 straight for Illinois, just took over, finished with 31, 22 of them came after halftime. 
just monster performance. I understand the opponent, uh, but nevertheless, great stuff for Illinois. Keep an eye on that going forward uh, with those two. Creighton winning the way that it did, I thought was highly significant. Credit to Rob Anderson, uh, Blue Jays uh, stud SID. He uh, he sent out since 2013-14, only eight times has a Villanova opponent shot at least uh, north of 56%, and uh, four of those eight times have been the Creighton Blue Jays. They tend to have really strong performances. That's a nice little... You know, I understand kind of nationally, even though both teams are relevant, it doesn't really flare up. It's like, oh, Nova versus Creighton. It's coming up this weekend. But they actually ha- they have a tendency to play some really, really nice and memorable games there. For Creighton, um, it just puts itself in a nice position to get a really good seed going forward if Marcus Zagorowski can continue this. So I think the context is important. Has surgery a year ago, comes back, but he's basically out till mid-July. And then... Uh, he was out in the preseason again with some uh, some lingering uh, issues and then had a hamstring problem like a month ago. So he has really not been fully healthy. If he's fully healthy now, it changes the dynamic of that program. And for Villanova, just kind of big picture, I think barring the Wildcats winning out, and that includes a, a Big East tournament championship, I think the loss, even though it's completely respectable, um, given all the other competition for the one line, this probably means that Nova's really seeking toward a two seed uh, to get a one. I think it's going to have to win out there. So that was my big takeaway from, uh, from that one. Um, any particular thoughts on that game or you want me to keep rolling? Well, keep I mean, Zigarowski goes big and just carves Villanova up, especially in the second half. And you know, it's not a make or break. Like both these teams are in the NCAA tournament. Both these teams are going to get good seeds, but we talked about this at some point over the past week. I believe Creighton's got three quad three losses at home. Like they're, they're, there's not another team in the top 25 and one that's got three quad three losses. And so, you know, you can't do anything about them now, but you can try to get big signature wins um, to make up for it. Like if you're going to lose games, you're supposed to win. The best way to offset it is to go win games. You're supposed to lose. And they were an underdog at home on Saturday. So to win that game by double digits, again, it just balances out the resume a little bit. Arkansas beats Missouri, and we said what we needed to say about Missouri on the last podcast. Here's my question for you. Listen, first of all, it's Arkansas's first win over an NCAA tournament-level team yet this season. Played a bad non-con. That's actually a very meaningful win for the Hogs there. Woo pig suey. Uh, Must go shirtless afterward in celebration. No shirt, but a mask. Got to respect that move. My question is, what needs to happen, uh, Cutie, for you to rip off your shirt bare-chested in celebration? What's got to go down for you to, for that to happen? Were you going bare-chested Friday night if Nebraska won? Is that what Was that going to happen? I might have. You would have. I might have. I think you would. I think, you know what? I think you were like half-nip. I think you were half-nip with about a minute to go. You just couldn't quite pull the trigger. I don't like uh, being topless. Even in the shower, I'm uncomfortable. I, I don't enjoy it. I have I don't like shirts. being topless even in the shower. I don't enjoy. I mean, I do it, you know, because it feel like you have to. But I don't enjoy it. I don't enjoy it. I have swim shirts. I'm not trying to die of UV rays. You think I'm trying to die of UV rays? Okay. So you're by the way, a- if you're if you're ever ashamed of your body. You don't have to like wear a t-shirt into the ocean, like a because then you look like an idiot. But if you wear actual swim shirts, and then you can just say, "I'm not trying to die of UV rays. I'm just trying to protect my skin." You can sort of sell it a little bit. So that's what I do. I own several swim shirts, listen, like six, listen, of all bit. colors. I have white and black, red and blue, whatever color you need. I got it. Listen, sugar on this Valentine's Day edition of the podcast. 
you have nothing to be ashamed about with that body of yours. Okay? There's no shame whatsoever. You're a well-built I hate, man. I hate myself. Okay. You're a well-built man. Well, glad we covered that part of it. I have- No, like when, when I see Musk go topless in the locker room, some people laugh. Some people might roll their eyes. My first thought is there is no scenario I would ever do that. No shot. All right. Fair enough. Unless Nebraska gets a home win in Pinnacle Bank over a top five team. Then I have to go... Then I have to go topless on HQ. <laughs> I was going to say, like, maybe on the pod when we go to video. But if you want to try and pull it off on HQ, I'm not going to stop no, you. No, this is this is the this is the new deal. Oh, Nebraska upsets a top five team inside Pinnacle Bank. I immediately text Chris Hassel and say, <laughs> "Get behind the desk. Come straight to me for reaction." <laughs> and rather than <laughs> all I've got is my IFB. Clipped on the back of my neck. Oh my my bare neck. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, couple more here. Couple. <laughs> you were watching HQ and I was breaking down Nebraska's upset with no shirt on. <laughs> Just. Yes. Oh, boy. Oh. Uh, I'm so happy that I am able to provide these visuals. I knew bringing up must taking off a shirt would pay off. Um, before I get to Loyola Chicago Drake, I'm going to mention two results that you didn't bring up that were important. Uh, VCU wins over Bonna to get to 15-4. and four. It's now 32nd in the net. That's huge for their at-large chances. Big Friday night result. And then probably the best or most needed non-Drake win of the weekend was UConn. Also, like, Drake did not have its best player, and UConn, again, did not have James Booknight. The Huskies go to Xavier. Previously, two lost Xavier. They get the win. UConn by nature of the victory, keeps itself in the NCAA tournament conversation. They won 80-72. It's the second quad one win for UConn this season. I would argue it's its best. They also have a neutral court win over USC. USC is the better team, but it had book night. This was without book night on the road in a really big situation there. So credit to the Huskies. They at least stay in the tournament conversation. I wouldn't put them in the field just yet, but by getting that, I think they've got a, they've got a decent shot there. Um, UVA over UNC. I was just wondering if UNC would keep it close. They don't even score 50. It's the first time in the history of that rivalry uh, that Virginia's held a seven-game win streak against Carolina. So good on Virginia. It's got a distant chance, I think, at a one seed. If it doesn't lose again, it's clearly looking to be the class of that conference. And then Loyola-Chicago-Drake, that was the best possible outcome for the Valley in period. Because Loyola-Chicago rolls on Saturday, Parish. Because of that... Gets into the top 10 of Ken Palm right now, still number 10, even after the loss. I just refreshed it when we started the podcast. Even with the loss logged at Ken Palm, top 10, number 10, behind Virginia and ahead of Villanova. And then for Drake to get the home win, it's going to register as a quadrant one win. So both of those teams are now going to be one and one in uh, in the top echelon there. And they're going to keep the chance of a two-bid valley alive. Apparently, there was some bad blood at the end of it. I don't know if the post-game press conferences would have revealed any more information. Obviously, we've been podcasting since that game went final. But give me this in the title game. I'll tell you this. If both I these, watched the end. I didn't see anything. I didn't see anything either. I don't know what was going on there. No idea. But, you know, they, they the lights went off. It was like a Drake concert for there for a couple minutes. So I don't know what got lost in translation with the, with the darkness and the, and the lights. But if these teams don't lose again until... The league tournament, I think they're both going to be in. And I'm not even saying they got to both face each other as the one and two seed in the title game. I think if they can both go 
and not lose again. Loyola Chicago is 18-4. and four. It's got three more scheduled games against the Valpo Pacers on Wednesday and then home against Southern Illinois twice. That's three straight home games. If, if Loyola can get to 21-4 and four and be like a top-10 Ken Palm team, they're fine. I, they got to be fine. Now, just to be clear here, the predictives love them. Entering the day, they were 14th in BPI, 10th in Ken Palm, 34th in Sagarin's a little lower. The results-based metrics, um, KPI 42, strength of record 38, and the net is, to me, that's just a blend of both. I, I think they're still good. For Drake, Drake the, the committee is not going to lo- leave out a, f- what did you say, four-loss team? It would with- be a five-loss team because if they lost one more time. So it would be a five, let's say it's a five-loss team and it's 19th in Ken Palm. Let's just say, let's be reasonable. I still don't. They're not leaving that team out. I would they ag- shouldn't yeah. leave that team out. I would agree with you, uh, which is, and if it, by the way, if Loyola had won this game today, then I, without a doubt, it would not even be a question because they would have had another quad uh, one win in that stake. Drake is now 20-2. and two. It's got a tougher road ahead. It still has four, five more scheduled games in league play. Three of them are on the road, including two at Bradley, which is good enough to beat Drake. So it's actually imperative for Drake, in my opinion, to not lose again until the Valley Tournament. If it can win all these five to get to 25-2, and two, then I think it can lose anywhere in the Valley Tournament, and it will still clearly get in. That was a huge weekend for the Valley, and in terms of results and the way the games happened, I actually thought it happened perfectly. Remember, Drake does not have its best player, Tank Hemphill, foot surgery. If he returns the season, the earliest that they project he could come back would be the start of the NCAA Tournament, so that was a big one. That's the problem for Drake, is that they've got losable games on their schedule, and they don't have their best player. Um, The reports are that he could... uh, First off, broke his foot last Wednesday against Northern Iowa. Surgery on Thursday, so they did the surgery as quickly as he can. Two weeks, resume activities, possible return to games in four weeks. So you're going four weeks from last Thursday. That's March 11th. Title game in the MVC tournament is March 7th. So he's likely done, as you noted, until the NCAA tournament at the earliest. And again, there's no guarantee Drake's going to get to the NCAA tournament right now. Just one and one in quadrant one, four and zero in quadrant two, but they got that quad three loss that came at the Homer and Janet Drew Center, so that's tough. Um, I do think there is a scenario where both Loyola Chicago and Drake get in, but if you're the MVC and you're trying to map that right now, you want Drake to win your auto bid and Loyola Chicago to get an at large because Loyola Chicago is going to have a much better chance at an at large than Drake. That is likely the case. Drake was 40th when the day started. We won't know the net ranking, and I'm talking net, when it, until Monday when it refreshes. My guess, this is a blind guess. I'm going to say Loyola, which was 10, is going to drop down to, like, 14, and Drake will go from 40 to about 35. Uh, and it's got seven road wins. So here's the big thing. It can't lose in the regular season again. It get 10 road wins. That stuff will add up and will help in the uh, in the second quadrant there in particular. So I think it's imperative, and it's going to be tough, obviously. But they still have a shot there. Uh, if Drake had lost at home to Loyola Chicago, um, it would have basically had almost no at-large case at all. But getting the win was highly significant. And, uh, yeah, that was a nice little uh, game. took forever. I mean, we started podcasting 30 minutes after I thought we were going to. But, uh, but nevertheless, Drake, UConn, VCU, some of the biggest bubble-level wins that we saw over the weekend. You mentioned Virginia has a chance to get a one seed. You're right. Uh, the, like the, that resume is starting. As I was going through the top twenty-five and one late Saturday night, it's it's sort of surprised me a little bit that the resume looked as good as it looked. At Saturday night, it had it featured zero quad three losses, and then Sunday morning, 
that San Francisco lost flipped back mm. to quad three because Gonzaga beat San Francisco by a billion, 100 to 61. So right now the Cavs are eight and two in the first two quadrants with a quad three loss to San Francisco. None of this stuff matters as much as it sounds like it matters, but I do think it's it's notable. USF, uh, San Francisco, they were 97th in the net on Saturday. So it was a Q2 loss on Saturday for Virginia. Then Gonzaga beat San Francisco's brains in. USF dropped to 101st in the net. So that makes it a quad three loss because the cutoff for a neutral court game is 100. 100 is a Q2. 101 is a Q3. USF went from 97th to 101 after losing to Gonzaga. So that wasn't ideal for Virginia. Not the biggest deal in the world, but having a clean quad three, it just looks cleaner. It just looks better. And so uh, if you're a Virginia fan and you really want to get in the weeds, like you need to root for San Francisco to get back into the top 100 um, of the net. Uh, We mentioned Luca Garza, Io DeSumo. they are the obvious candidates for Big Ten Player of the Year, perhaps for National Player of the Year. Luca, it's weird. You wouldn't assume this. Iowa beats Michigan State on the road by 30. Luca Garza was just okay. Three of 11 from the field, eight points. It was the worst loss for Tom Izzo at home in his head coaching career. And so now in the same year, we got Bill Self suffering his worst loss inside Allen Fieldhouse ever. Tom Izzo suffering his worst loss inside the Breslin Center ever. Mike Krzyzewski already has four home losses for the first time in 14 years. We've touched on it, but like that's pandemic-related. There's no way these teams are getting their brains beat out at home um, by these margins if they had the home court advantage they usually have. Uh, I agree. That was that was the notable thing with that game. Luca actually had a bad game, brought his stats down, makes the race with Io that much uh, closer, and in the process, worst loss in the history of that building and for Izzo at home, and Michigan State's at-large chances have now evaporated. They need to win the Big Ten tournament. You want to get to some Apple podcast reviews? Let's uh, let's l- let's do it, cutie, and let's do it in a let's do it in a GIF here. I got some Valentine's Day dinner awaiting me here. This one comes from Drew. This one comes from Drew. He ran. He, he he ran into your brother. Okay. Which one? Henrik. Okay. Oh, <laughs> I've been waiting for this. I've been waiting for this dude to win a golf tournament for eight years. Here's what Drew wrote. He said, I happened to run into Norlander's brother, Henrik, while he was warming up on the range at Pebble Beach Pro-Am today. He sent this on Thursday. (laughs) As he was leaving the range, I made sure to let him know I was a big fan of the pod, and he said he would pass the word along. (laughs) He then proceeds to ask me if I have any cash to spare, (laughs) and I gladly threw him some cash, but couldn't help but wonder why this tour golfer would need cash from a college student. Turns out, GP and Harold Varner III had cleaned Henrik's clock and skins the day before, and he was flat broke. Henrik did respond well to his adversity hour by firing a 64 in the opening round of the Pebble Beach Pro-Am, leaving him just two back from the lead. Here's hoping he can finish high enough to financially recover from the beating he took from GP and HV3. How often do people bring up Henrik Norlander to you? Not often, but it's happened a bit more now because he's he's creeping. He's creeping on these leaderboards, but he's been around for a while and I'm waiting for my, my homie to get this done here. Let's go. Let's wrap the Norlanders around the world. Unfortunately, he faded on the weekend. He did fade on the weekend. I'm trying to see exactly where he finished. Oh, no. Tied for 26. He shot a final round 73. Dead leg. No good. Daniel Berger, your winner out at Pebble Beach. Daniel Berger, first win ever on the PGA Tour. Where where did it happen? 
Uh, TPC South Trivia time. Trivia T- time. TPC Southwind. TPC Southwind is correct. Daniel Berger's second ever tour, tour win. Where did it happen? TPC Southwind. That's true. He won back-to-back tournaments. It's his first two twins ever, and now he's just added um, added a, a win at Pebble Beach. You ever want to play Pebble Beach? Is that like on a bucket list thing for you? It is. I've played Torrey Pines out there in California and San Diego, but uh, never Pebble. Kind of hard to get on, I feel like. Um, but I don't think. No, I actually don't. I don't think it's that hard. It's it's like five hundred around. I, I play it. Yeah, that's that's definitely. I mean, the course. Me and my buddy, me and my three buddies that I play with all the time have have sworn that we're going to go this summer, that we're going to go play this summer. All right. The most notable one I've ever played is Kiowa Island, the ocean course at Kiowa Island. I think the PGA Championship is there next year, so I played that one. But I've never played Pebble Beach. But I'm going to try to knock it out in 2021. Next Apple review. This one comes from <laughs> someone who labeled who, who described himself as as. Uh, Two-year-old Tony Hinkle. First off, a disclaimer. I've been privileged to work with both Matt and Gary as part of my work in college basketball, and the vibe they have on the pod is just like talking with them in person. The pod feels like I'm sitting at the bar with friends talking college hoops, which is perfect. Whether you're a first-time listener or have been doing so since the Goodman-Borzello days, this should be one of, if not the, first stop for college hoops fan. So this is somebody we know, but they did not They did not publicly acknowledge themselves but i take that as a compliment that is exactly what i want the podcast to sound like like two friends talking and the same way we talk in real life like the only difference between talking to me in real life and listening to this podcast is that you i got your shirt off. in real life you got your shirt off and i would have my shirt off that's exactly right like when i used to go out pre-pandemic every once in a while i'd meet a stranger and you'd just be talking randomly and they'd go oh, you sound just like you sound on the radio I'd be like, what, are you, what did you expect? Like, I, I don't have a fake radio voice and then another voice in my own personal life. Like, this is, I try to, I try to, on radio, just sound like me. And apparently, according to at least one person who knows this in real life, uh, it comes across that way on the podcast. So uh, I'll take that as a compliment. Thank you for leaving that. Last one comes from Chuck's, it looks like. And here's what Chuck's wrote. Love you guys, Pod. As a former hooper, so it's a former baller. Uh, as a former ho- hooper, it is so insightful to hear people actually use stats instead of use superficial, gaudy numbers. My favorite pod was listening to you guys talk about the holidays and you guys' sarcastic quips. Diction and grammar policing is hilarious. Without this pod, I would be stuck listening to the awful caricature of other pods. One note, though. I would love if you could stop coming after my guy, Jeff Goodman. You do not want to get on his bad side and be on the end of one of his Twitter Twitter rants. Do we come at Jeff Goodman? Coincidentally enough, this was the same exact one that I picked out. Um, We're not going to stop. We're going to continue to poke and prod our buddy Jeff Goodman. And I appreciated this. Uh, I appreciated this review. And listen, he just he sets himself up for it. Plus, we know that he doesn't listen to the podcast. So that makes it even more fun. The fact that he's completely unaware of all this because he's busy, you know, making bets every morning and doing his own deal there. So, uh, you know, it's it's completely uh, it's completely fine. By the way, um, I picked this one specifically because I'm going to toss out uh, a quick grammar tip to people. So I've noted I notice on occasion people use the word notorious incorrectly. Okay. Notorious has a negative connotation for it. So you would not use this phrase like this. This would be incorrect. Gonzaga is notoriously one of the best teams in the WCC. No. 
the notorious. It has a negative quality to it. It means like infamous. Infamous doesn't mean you're well known. It means you're well known for doing something very bad. So um, this gets misused a lot. When people use the word notorious, when they want to, when they think they're saying something might be noteworthy, it might be a uh, a bit of a, a malapropism, if you will. But I appreciate the grammar note on that. We were overdue for a, for a new one, and so keep it in your back pocket going forward. Tell me if I use this correctly. Jeff Goodman is infamous for unnecessarily picking a fight with Jerry Stackhouse. That would be correct. Why is he picking a fight with Jerry Stackhouse? I have no idea. Not currently blocked by Jerry Stackhouse. Am I'm not I, either. In fact, followed I, not by... Not only am I not blocked, I'm followed by I, Jerry Stackhouse. I, 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 too, am followed by Jerry Stackhouse. Jerry Stackhouse is getting a no-context preview picture on this, by the way. Why not? I'm pro Jerry Stackhouse. I'm, I'm, st- I'm still a... I'm going to be a believer. I will say, when he worked in the G League and uh, worked with the Grizzlies, he was here in Memphis for a year, I think. He had a good reputation. People spoke well about him. Walked into a tough spot there, and uh, Vandy's not that good, but we'll see if you can get a turnaround. All right, we ready to get out of here? Let's go. <laughs> shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry MF and Teagle. Legend. Shouts to Larnell. Thank you guys for once again listening to the Ion College Basketball Podcast in the middle of the dumbest, pan- dumbest <sighs> pandemic. I've ever lived through my whole life. It's gotten so dumb, I can't even say it correctly anymore. If you enjoy the podcast, please go subscribe. Anywhere you subscribe to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, do that. And we will talk to you again on Wednesday morning. Till then, take care. I'm Luke Thomas, along with my co-host, Brian Campbell. Morning Combat brings you an entertaining and informative look at MMA and boxing. Near, far, wherever the hell you are, Morning Combat will go on. Habib Nurmagomedov, I don't think he had peaked. I think he probably still has some levels he could get to. Connor's serious again about getting back into title contention. CBS Sports became one-on-one with Bellator MMA. Showtime Boxing is poised to have a huge year. It's going to be insane. Morning Combat with a K. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on all podcast platforms. Hey everybody, the deadline to get your application in for the spring vintage of Village Global Accelerator is March 1st. Companies that have been through the Accelerator have raised from some of the best venture funds in the world like A16Z, Lux, Spark, Bessemer, Founders Fund, and many more. Learn more and apply at villageglobal.vc slash accelerator. Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by two very special guests, Anne-Laure Lacamp of Nest Labs and uh, Anna Gatt of Interintellect. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. By, by, by way of introduction, Anna, we, we were going to do the podcast just us, but uh, you wanted to bring in Anne Lore, uh, who, uh, who I've been a fan of for, for a long time. What, why don't you talk about why you wanted to bring us all three together today? 
first of all, we're super good friends and we never get to hang out. So this was a <laughs> sneaky way of just like giving ourselves an uninterrupted hour. And I think it's just, it's very difficult to kind of, uh, you know, make that happen otherwise. And I also think that, uh, you know, Anilor, who is a scientist and an incredible expert on mindfulness, curiosity, and just like, okay, I have these humans and they have brains, what to do with them? And then there is myself, and I think I kind of come to often similar conclusions, but from a completely different angle, right? I come from public discourse, how to, what to do with society, how to create, you know, spaces of conversation uh, on the internet or offline where people are at their best selves and that they're most brilliant and, you know, how to give the most brilliant people the loudest mics, right? And probably Anilor's angle is like, who are the most brilliant people or how, how does, how does, any person discover their brilliance. And so to me, the fact that, you know, we arrive as good friends to the same campfire from the two other angles of the, of the pitch, to me, that's just, you know, one of the miracles of, of this past year for me. And, you know, why not, why not explore that to, uh, to a deeper degree? Yeah. And, and Laura, why don't you introduce um, the angle that, that you bring in and what your vision is for what you're trying to do with Nest Labs? Yeah, first, I want to say thanks to Anna for bringing us all together today. It's true that I would love for us to be able to hang out more often together. So this is an amazing opportunity to just get a really good chat. And yeah, when it comes to Nest Labs, I think Anna gave a really good introduction. And to go a little bit deeper, what I've noticed is that lots of people who are really smart, really talented, really creative are basically struggling to achieve their full potential because they experience burnout or imposter syndrome or fear of being judged. And these are the kind of things that Nest Labs is trying to help with by creating a safe space where smart people can experiment together, explore together and learn together. So that's basically what the Nest Labs community is all about. And both of you are, are building very active communities in the, in the COVID, in COVID era. What's that been like? Maybe, Anna, we could start with you and you could introduce more of the type of events that, that you put together and then talk about what, what that transition has been like to, to full digital and how you think about how that will evolve, you know, in a post-COVID world. Yes, when, you, when we say active communities, I think people have no idea how active it is. Like, this is like, you know, things are on fire and that's just the most amazing thing, um, I think, uh, to to explore. It's really interesting because I was, I mean, I don't, you know, this is one of those, oh, I pivoted my startup kind of stories that I'm sure, Eric, you hear 10,000 of, you know, per day. I had, I, had a, I had a startup that I was working on and, and I had a very casual community on the side. Um, and then I started noticing that, first of all, the overlap between the two companies or the two initiatives was just so, you know, almost 100%. And, and I also started seeing that the, the kind of the, gravi- the gravitational force was more tilting it towards um, just the community hangout things. And, and I went to San Francisco a couple of times and I traveled and I what I noticed uh, was that everywhere I went, uh, you know, and I, I brought up the, uh, the question of, you know, non-political multidisciplinary spaces, just 100 people materialized that I'd never met before. And they were like, yeah, here we are. Um, and I thought, okay, so let's ask these people, like, why are you here? You know, <laughs> the kind of the intro question. Um, what can I do for you? What is it that you want? What should I build that you want? And so early 2020 or late 2019, it became clear to me that this is what people want. There's a specific space missing in between the public and the private where people want to learn and educate the public. 
And I believe, like, I'm, I'm one of these people who, you know, think that, you know, politics is the participants. So if there are new types of participants, there will be new types of politics. And I think in a weird way, Interinsac started building a new way to engage with each other as, as you know, in, in a civic sphere. Uh, to me, that's really interesting. It, it also signals that public and private no longer mean what they used to mean. So I come more from, from, from that angle. And, and then that brought up the question, okay, so what is this space like? What in, what it, how is it constructed so it ensures um, this continued the, the sustenance of this, this cultural norm that we get together and we talk about all these really elevated things and it's never going to get ugly or, or repetitive. Uh, how do you ensure that the community does this um, naturally? And, and it's kind of just this crazy experimentation that, that kind of, you know, leaves you with some conclusions about what kind of conversations people want, how public it should be, what are the norms for moderation, what are the norms in the community, and I always say, like, I'm running after my community. They do what they want to do, and I run after them. <laughs> Anna Laura is, like, grinning because you know what I'm talking about. It's like, you don't know. You just allow people to express this deep wish in a healthy way, and then you can go and kind of build around it. When you wrote the blog post a couple years ago where niche we just didn't know, we just didn't know is that where you were sort of getting at, that the difference between public and, and private ha- has evolved, or, or was that something different? Unpack uh, th- those ideas a little bit. Uh, thank you for the question. I, I love that this, this essay is going to haunt me until I die. Um, <laughs> in a good way, in a good way. Uh, this is going to be my, I can get no satisfaction and I will still be playing when I'm 65. So um, it's really interesting. I mean, what I, I grew up in, in late communist Eastern Europe and, and I, I grew up in this kind of Václav Havelian travesty situation where you have private speech in the home and then you have public speech outside. And those two things are completely different. I think anybody who has experienced really living in really unhealthy states, uh, you will you will notice that this this happens. So you have a truth at home that you discuss with your family or your loved ones, and then you go outside and you play this role, right? And and some people think that this you can be doing without kind of infecting either the one or the other. And what I noticed when I was growing up, and why I became a linguist and a screenwriter and an obsessive of of the dialogue which is ironic because I'm kind of giving a monologue here, but I will wrap up very quickly, um, was that I became super, super fascinated by the difference between private and public language and whether we can align them. So we are always, uh, you know, protected from this kind of duplicity, you know, when, when one is, one pretends to be true. And I think we kind of all know what, what this, how this looks in, in the 21st century. And from this exploration came all the startups and all the projects that I've ever worked on. It's just that it was interintellect and I had to kind of dumb it down so much that I literally thought, okay, so how would this company look if it was post-apocalypsis and there's no internet and, and electricity? And then you're like, okay, the greatest startup still exists. You know, Google is this guy sitting in front of a cave and you're like, hey, where does Jim live? And the guy says, well, it's like three caves down. And you're like, thanks. You know, and Facebook is this grandma who tells you like, Eric is out a lot these days, you know, and we saw him dancing. Um, or Airbnb is trying to sell you a, a very nice, you know, cove on the beach that people like you really liked. And I thought, okay, so what is interintellect with a pen and a paper? And and when I went back to this super, super basic level is when the true growth started happening to me, because that's when I became really receptive to what people wanted, because when there's nothing built yet, then people will tell you. Yeah. 
and, and I want to get later into sort of the, how that relates to academia, but, but and Laura, let, let's transition to you. How did your sort of community uh, evolve? I know you think a lot about learning communities and you, you've had to think about a lot about offline and on, online, of course. Why don't you unpack what, what's resonating with you? Well, I wouldn't be able to talk about the journey of the Nest Labs community without mentioning the pandemic, because that has been a massive catalyst for where we are today. In March 2020, I did a first meetup, the only face-to-face meetup we ever had, where I sent an email to my newsletter and I was like, hey, who wants to come and hang out in my living room in London? And we had people coming. Most surprisingly, one of the attendees flew from Seattle (laughs) to attend that meetup where we were like 10 people in my living room. So it was amazing to have this person flying from another country, another continent to be there. And we did that meetup. And then obviously lockdown, we all know the story and it was not possible anymore to meet face to face. So we transitioned to online meetups. And for the first few months, I organized a couple of meetups every month, which I was hosting. And to me, the most amazing transition that Nest Labs has been going through is when, and I know it's the case for Anna as well, is when members started organizing their own meetups. Sometimes that I can't attend because I'm doing something else or I'm sleeping and basically my attendance is not expected anymore. They're just hanging out together. So just this month, like we had a few dozens, like I think we're at 30 or 40 events for the month where members just pick a topic, pick a date, pick a time, they post it, we add it to the shared calendar and everyone can come and join. And we've had topics ranging from productivity, creativity, mental health, parenting, burnout, lots of different topics where people are not sharing their expertise because I think lots of platforms are doing this already. Instead, they're just learning in public and sharing their learning journey and inviting other members to join them on their journey. And this is really what the meetups are about. It's about saying, hey, I'm curious about this topic. I'm still pretty new. I really want to learn about it together. Do you want to join me on this journey? Do you want to come and talk about it, share our best tips, our challenges, our strategies, etc.? So today, this is where we are. And I would love to say that I'm an amazing strategist who predicted that this is what it would look like a year after I launched the community, that that was my plan all along. But the truth is that it is absolutely not. I had absolutely no idea where this was going to go. And I think the the only area where I can give myself a pat on the back is that I just created this, created this space where people can experiment, can learn, can grow, can make mistakes, etc. And the members have really embraced that ethos as part of the Nest Labs community. So this is where we are today. We, we have lots of live events every week, conversations in the online community, The part that I'm unsure about, and I really don't know at this stage, is once we get to a point where we can meet in person again, do I keep things the way they are? Do I encourage people to meet in person? This is something I'm still pretty unclear about, and I don't know. And I'll probably do the same thing I always do with the community, which is just asking them what they want. Yeah. What's the secret to decentralizing the community such that they don't rely on sort of the central 
uh, figure? Like, what can other communities learn from from what you've done, Anla? I am. Um, it's no secret. I'm a big fan of no code. <laughs> so um, I think automating a lot of the processes. So instead of being a bottleneck where people need to go through to make things happen, there are processes in place where they can go and fill a form and it fills the calendar and you have all of these automatic processes in places. To me, this is the magic behind scaling a community in a way that's still human. And it's at the core of Nest Labs. I have, you know, beside a little bit of CSS and a little bit of JavaScript here and there to fix some things, most of the Nest Lab community and the whole platform, really, including the website, the newsletter, et cetera, is using no-code tools. I, you know, I could build an altar to Zapier for everything it's doing for me. It's like a full-time employee at Nest Labs at this point because it's doing so much. So... I think just making sure that there you don't need a human to make things happen, that things can be automated. That's one thing. The second thing that I started doing in the past couple of months, which has been immensely helpful, is documentation. It's quite interesting how we always think about documentation for products. Most good products have very solid documentation where they explain how do you do this, how do you use the API, etc., but I haven't seen many communities building really solid documentation. So this is a process that we have at Nest Labs where anytime someone asks a question and we're like, oh, that's actually a really good question. We're pretty sure someone else has the same question or is going to ask it in a few months. We turn that question and the answer into a page that we add to the documentation. And this is this living, breathing document that everyone can refer to whenever they want to host an event, create a support group, or interact with other people within the community. You, you recently hired a, a community architect. Can you talk about how you, how you see that role and, and whether you, you think other people should think about it in a similar way? Yeah. So what's really interesting is that our community architect, she's uh, called Carly, and she's absolutely amazing. Carly, if you listen to this, I love you so much, and thank you for everything you're doing for the community. She started as an SLABS member. I think first, that's very important that whoever you hire to help you manage the community needs to be a member, first and foremost, someone who has experienced what life is like on the other side of the table. And she reached out to me. She gave me the most amazing presentation I've ever seen in my whole life. Um, it included videos with music musicals in it, and she started singing. It was absolutely beautiful. Never seen a presentation like that ever before. Never been pitched to get a job like this ever before either. And we did a uh, one month where she, I gave, I gave her like you know full freedom to experiment with whatever she wanted, and I just told her, let's see at the end of the month, like just do whatever you think is helpful for the community. And the title community architect, she actually came up with it and I thought it was absolutely perfect because her role is not management. She's not a community manager. I'm very proud that I created a community that doesn't need a manager, that doesn't need a boss. She's not a chief community officer either. I don't need an officer. I don't need a manager. She's an architect. She's building and designing the processes that help the community run and that empower community members to make the most of the community. And to me, this is what a community architect is. That, that's really fascinating. 
I'm curious for both of you, when you think about your respective communities, um, how they fit into sort of just the broader trend towards towards learning communities and, and where, where we see that, that going? Maybe, Andler, you can start. It's interesting. I One of the weird things that happened to me in the past year is that I just don't really have time to look at the market that much because I have just so much to do. So I would be reluctant to, um, you know, come up with a PhD um, topic for uh, for where online communities are going. Uh, what I see, I mean, I can I can talk a little bit about how community fits into the AI, into interintellect, because we are not primarily a community, right? We're a community-enabled business. What we do is interdisciplinary conversations that hosts can monetize. So we are basically building the, the platforms for the public intellectuals of the future who may come from anywhere in the world, from any academic rank or you know, level of expertise. Uh, we empower them to, to teach the public and, and, first of all, figure out what the public is interested in from what they know, right? Um, and we provide the tools for, for that to happen. In some sense, the audience as well. But we still, you know, we grow via the, the audiences of our hosts. But what is really, really interesting, I think, about how the community builds itself um, and kind of upholds its own methods via its own culture, right? I love this point that it doesn't have a manager. Like we don't, we don't really moderate. We don't really manage the community. The community is adults and they know why, why they are there and who they want to speak with and what they want to do. Um, my job is to, to enable that, right, and facilitate and make it smoother and, and make sure that all the answers are, all the, um, answers are there where people can find them. So um, it's really interesting. I, I always find that the community for us is the backstage. Interintellect is a very public endeavor, so it speaks with the world. Um, and then you have the community, which is, which is that we actually have a, a channel called Hosts Green Room. And that's where the hosts are. And it's, a, you know, it's a very private space where the hosts can complain or ask questions and share their worries and, 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 and get tips from each other. Um, we have a very strong host training program within the II, and currently hosts are training hosts. So the whole thing is becoming uh, very decentralized from that angle as well. And other than that, I mean, we are on Discord. We moved there um, 1st of November, so quite recently. Um, and we have... Every host has their own channel where they're the manager, and that's where, where they are basically building their own uh, their own audience. We are just about to um, to launch our own platform uh, with basically host portfolios. So uh, the next weeks are going to be suddenly very busy and exciting. And where I see this, uh, where I see this kind of maybe fitting into the wider trend, is is just the understanding that you know. Most famous public thinkers used to be produced by academia, traditional media and traditional publishing. And these um, force fields are largely, if not gone, but weakened and fragmented, which leaves a giant, you know, free space to be taken up by those with the ambition and, and talent and, and work ethic to, to fill it in. Um, and there is, I think, I, I'm sure, Anna Laura, you have a, a lot to say about this as well, but what really struck me as, as unexpected in the past year was that there is such a demand for this. Like people are so curious and so incredibly motivated and loyal. And if you if there is an amazing writer to, to read and an amazing new philosopher to listen to, or just somebody who will share their, you know, pet passion with you about 
a super niche part of biology and, and people will flock there. I always tell my host, like the nichest, the topic, the more attendees you will have. Like whenever we try to do something like AI and ethics, nobody booked and the host is sitting there with like two people. And if you say something like a small village in Myanmar and their cuisine, instant sellout, <laughs> like $100, $100 tickets, 50 people book in two hours. I'm serious. It's just crazy. And I think that says so much about the internet and so much about like what happens when internet weirdos grow up and have money to spend <laughs> because this is what happened, right? Um, so that, that's kind of our audience. And, and, you know, every day they surprise me with something so awesome. I could never have come up with it myself. I just want to come back to the idea of community-based learning because this is something that's very close to my heart. And I was just a second ago pulling up my phone because I wanted to double check the number and not say something wrong. But the... Um, completion rate for online courses is 5%, which is so bad. People buy courses, which is based on their desire to better, to learn, to improve, etc. And then they actually don't manage to complete them. And something I've noticed in the past couple of years is that cohort-based courses and community-based courses are doing a much better job at fostering learning and actually completing whatever goal you have when it comes to learning. So this is what we're doing at Nest Labs and I've seen other people doing it in a great way. You know, I mean, Eric, on deck, right? So that's what you're doing. Looking at creators like Thiago Forte, David Pearl, Ali Abdal, etc. All of them, if you look at the way they teach have community at the core of their offering. And Anna, you mentioned loyalty. And I think to me, there's this deep curiosity that you mentioned, there's motivation that you mentioned, but this loyalty that you talk about, you're not really loyal to a topic that you want to study, right? You're loyal to the people you're studying it with. And I really think that This is the power of online communities such as the Interintellect or Nest Labs, or if you look at Tago Fortis community or On Deck, etc., is that every day you show up, you see fellow students, fellow curious minds, fellow people who want to learn at the same time as you do, who are going through the same challenges, who have similar questions, and where every day you feel like you're kind of like climbing this staircase of knowledge together. So to me, online learning, this is really what online communities is unlocking. It's this idea that we're not only learning in public, we're actually learning together. And this is what university was supposed to be like, right? And then we went to university and it was not like that. Or if it was like that, then it ended and they kind of like spit you out and you're supposed to be, you know, absorbed by the, the, the private sector. And you're like, where is my intellectual fun? Am I just like, you know, Push to read Substacks, and then I, 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 until the end of my life, and never will I have interaction in my life. I mean, I always say that the moment when the first fellow interintellect put interintellect in their Twitter bio, my life changed. Like that was the moment I remember I was sitting in my kitchen because I always say like I'm rebuilding the public square from my kitchen, which is true. And and the first time that happened, uh, from then on, it's been just a completely different um, game, and. From then on, you know, I work for these people. <laughs> you know, it's like, the, you know, because, because loyalty goes both ways. 
I'm, and then you're like, okay, so my job every day when I wake up and until I go to bed is to serve um, the interns at community and the hosts and the audience. And it just puts everything into perspective in the sense that it's almost like public service to me. I, I actually, I went into technology because I felt that that's the best way in the 21st century to engage in public service. And I always considered it such. So, yay, <laughs> you know, that part worked. <laughs> And, and, and talk about the 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 future for how, how you see it evolving and, and sort of the grand vision, because the reason I originally reached out for this podcast was because, uh, well, one, I'd been a fan for, for a while, but your, your tweet about how you see the intellect in hundreds of years, like the Royal Society of Arts. What do you un- unpack that a bit? Uh, this is something I'm kind of reluctant to put into pitch decks because I'm like, it just doesn't necessarily fit um, the, uh, the short-termism of, of some parts of our business. Um, I mean... You know, I, I, I this, this is how I approach my my job. I'm building something into existence that I intend to exist for a very long time, and I intend it to be a little bit separate from me after a while, mostly because I have extreme limitations in my talent and intellectual abilities. So I, you know, at some point you just like allow it to go beyond you, and and for other people to um, to add their uh, their brilliance and, and and ideas and creativity and and, and strength. So, so I started doing interns like salons and as I was traveling. And then in 2019, these little hubs started popping up around the world and in, in places that I'd, I'd never been to. Like we have a hub in Atlanta. I'd never been to Atlanta, you know, like stuff like that. And my plan for 2020 was to create this offline, you know, um, network of, of civic and artistic and intellectual off-campus engagement and then we kind of went online because of COVID. It, it provided, I think, myself with this accelerated learning process um, that I could actually do it like a thousand times more than I would have been able to do it uh, offline at first. But I really want to pull it back um, uh, offline. And I remember, Anna-Laure, actually, your, your London meetup in March, uh, there was this photo of all the hand sanitizers on the table. So there was wine and the hand sanitizers. And I was like, this is a new era. So probably there will be a lot of hand sanitizer in the future, um, hopefully. <laughs> and I mean, I see this as a, as a, as a worldwide thing. You know, it's already happening. Interintellects are going to other courses and other community and they are running into other interintellects there. And I, I'm hearing it more and more. People are moving to new locales in the world and they, they are no longer alone in the world because there are fellow interintellects in that city. I, people are, you know, looking through books and articles and podcasts and like, oh, I know this person from Interinsect. I know this person from Interinsect. And, you know, this is how, this is how being an alumnus or alumna um, was supposed to be, be. And, and I think in a weird way, we are providing this, a weird, kind of an end of a type of loneliness that was present in our lives um, before the pandemic. It's interesting because a lot of things that are disruptive tend to be disruptive sort of you know, not directly, but indirectly, you know, from the side or a bit orthogonal. And, and all of us in, in a few ways are, are, are not, you know, competing with like Harvard, you know, head on, but in, in sort of indirect or interesting ways. And so I, I asked, as, as that as a segue to ask you, Anna, like in 10 years, what could you envision? Like, are you envisioning this is like a agency for, for intellectuals, you know, full stack services? Are you envisioning like, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of people have, have gone to intellect events? There are some decisions you probably have to make as, as you scale about, 
where you want, what lane you want to own, or maybe it's all of it. How, how do you sort of think about your, your dreams for, you know, what material it will look like? I, I like to say that um, I'm building a new type of media um, that didn't exist before. Um, and it's an idea that you can pull into existence in your living room or in a Zoom room or wherever you are. It, they are experimenting with it on Clubhouse now. So right now, as I'm, I'm here, there is the first uh, Clubhouse Interinsect meetup. And, you know, I'm, I see Interinsect as something that will be a natural part of life for people, the same way as going to the bookstore is or going to the theater. Uh, when you move to a new place, you will inquire about the local interintellect and just go there. Um, that's where you will meet people that you will have the best conversations with in the world. Um, some people will do it very seriously, use it for learning. Some people will do it very seriously. And we're already seeing this. So we have a couple of hosts who are doing this as a job. And we are angling to, you know, allow our first host to have made, you know, 50K a year or so, so that we can say that, okay, this, you can actually... Um, you get get a kind of a, st a starter salary um, just hosting intern tax loans. And there will be people who will be doing it like, oh, my wife and I go to the theater on a Saturday night. Um, we have dinner and then we go to an intern tax salon about the history of quantum physics or um, early Da Vinci art wax and, and have a great time, have a glass of wine, a little bit of cheese and, you know, just uh, just enjoy ourselves uh, in, in the kind of infinite game. And then hopefully many people in that room will be like, oh, I want to host one as well. <laughs> they will realize that, oh, actually, it's not. Uh, uh, there is this thing that um, our hosts uh, talk about, which is the salon high. So if you host an intern tax salon, you get this high after. Maybe and Laura as a neuroscientist, you will one day find the <laughs> magic formula of what happens to people's neurons exactly. But I'm just... This is true. And then the next day you tend to be tired and you will get a text message from Visa saying, what I did today was play video games <laughs> because you're really exhausted. Yeah. Maybe spend a couple of minutes talking about, you mentioned earlier, the non-political. Uh, you know, some people might be skeptical. There's no way what, you know, one is always political, even to be apolitical is political. Like I, I, unpack how, how you think about this sort of post-political uh, concept. Okay, and then I really, I will shut up afterwards because I want to pass the mic to, to Analog, but thank you for the question. Um, it's interesting. So we are non-political in the sense that we are non-partisan in any way. Uh, we have um, a similar restriction on topics that TEDx have, um, which means that we don't do any religious, uh, political or marketing activity. You can talk about religion. We have a lot of religious um, content in that sense. Um, you can talk about politics in general history of politics or, you know, political philosophy, but you can't, you know, because internet excellence don't have a goal. So they can't have an agenda where you're like, good job, let's leave. Um, and marketing activities, um, obviously. So we're just trying to enjoy the, the majority of topics, which thankfully lay outside uh, politics and allow people to explore them to very serious depths. I always say to my hosts that the, ma the main job of an interinteract host is to keep things complicated. Your job, you're there with 30 people from all over the world, all generations. For some people, it's 7.30 in the morning and they're breastfeeding. To someone else, it's 10 p.m. at night and they are just having a beer and enjoying the end of their day, right? They will come together from different languages, different religions, different strata of society. And because we're not, we don't have an agenda, we can enjoy the complexity of life and have conversations that I don't think you can have anywhere else on the internet. 
where you're like, life is really complicated. So let's talk about love. Let's talk about work. Why do we work? Let's talk about why are we on earth? Let's talk about, you know, the, the beginning beginnings of democracy. And you can just enjoy this benevolent chaos that I think is the honest way of, of looking at life because that's how it is. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I love that. Um, and Laura, I, I want to transition back to you. Anna was talking about, um, you know, how she has hosts who are training hosts. And, and you were talking about how you, I want to double click on your idea of, you know, community architect versus not having community manager. Do you feel like that's where, you know, communities uh, should be going or, or, or will be going? Or, or talk about um, what you lose when, when you don't have a manager or, uh, or an officer and how you make up for it. I think you can put most communities on a spectrum. The you know you have you have Twitter, which is completely unmoderated. You, you you can report content that's offensive or that's uh, spamming, but mostly it's unmoderated, right? Um, and then you have on the other end of the spectrum communities that are I think overly policed, where you have an officer. And I don't think that all community management officers or managers are acting this way because it's just a title and means nothing about the way they actually work, right? But if you take the extreme idea of an officer who's policing the way people are behaving in the community and the kind of conversations they can have, you can also create a community that lacks depth because you're preventing people from exploring, as Anna said, complex topic life is complicated and you can either embrace this i think twitter embraces that very well <laughs> life is really complicated <laughs> if you spend five minutes on twitter you'll be convinced of that or you have communities where they completely bury their head in the sand and ignore that fact and try to control everything and try to make it as smooth and as easy to me a really good community is a community that is both embracing the fact that, yes, life is freaking complicated. Second, you can have the space where we make it a little bit easier to think. And that's it. To me, that's a good community. That's a community that is not ignoring the fact that things are complex, things are complicated, but there are tools, there are strategies, there are ways of approaching a community culture that can make it easier to think together and that's what having a community architect or a community manager or officer because again these are just titles and I'm not a big fan of titles in any case but someone who is helping a community grow and its members to engage together is someone who will be very comfortable with both ends of the spectrum. I love this can I just add a note to this because this is so so closely resonating to to something that I have always kind of intuited and now I'm like yeah I will just own up to this so we have this knowledge right offline if you host a salon or a dinner party in your house you know how you will behave there will be really you know you probably picked up those skills when you were a child and you have a lot of experience in how to make people comfortable how to keep the volume okay so people can hear each other, how to make sure everybody has a, some food and something to drink and they have somewhere to sit. And if you see that somebody is cold or just like standing there alone, you go there and help them. And I think what we are doing in a weird way is we're trying to create, trying to allow people to export this knowledge into the online space, right? 
So because we, I mean, one of the one of my motivations for writing the niche um, essay was that these old divisions no longer work, right? And one of the divisions that no longer work, you have the left, right, old, young, you know, employed, unemployed, and all the other divisions that don't mean much for a Gen Z individual, right? And and one of these is the online, offline. I'm. I think we no longer want to think about offline as as a completely separate space and then you go online and it doesn't affect your life every what happens online will happen to you offline eventually and what happens offline will get documented immediately online like these two things are together so i always say to people like behave to an individual at an ir salon like you would in your living room sometimes you have strangers in your living room right because your friend brings his friend and the courtesy and the, the care and the attention that you extend to this individual is how you will behave in a Zoom or when we do um, um, o- uh, offline um, events again. So I think I really deeply trust our community. And we kind of joke around that it's like, oh, you're an II citizen, right? You have rights and responsibilities. And I always say, like, I trust you guys. You are adults. And you came here because you want to have a different experience. And my job is to get out of your way, <laughs> you know, in a positive sense. And of course, be there. And for people to know that if there is a problem, there's the bad signal. And like, you know, you will come and help. But otherwise, just, you know, you don't have to. I think, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of communities um, may unfold a little bit like office parties where, oh, we put up these little things and then people will have fun. No, that's not how fun works. Like, um, nobody nobody will have fun at, like, 4 p.m. next to a photocopier just because there is, like, a, a pink garland. That's not enough. It's not about the outside. You know, it's not about tokens that you put out. It's about, like you said on the law, like, ask people what they want and then make sure that, you know, uh, first of all, make sure that that thing can happen. And also allow people space to change their minds because your community may be like, we want this. And then this happens and they are like, no, we actually hate this. And then you can't say like, but you guys said it. And I, we already spent so much money on it. No, you're like, everything is an experiment and there is no psychological call on, on changing your mind or changing as a community. Right. So to me, these two things would be uh, crucial to mention. Yeah. You mentioned sort of dissolving, uh, you know, boundaries or, or, or divisions. Uh, you've thought a bit about that, uh, and as it relates to um, you know multidisciplinary and just sort of the the advent of the generalist in in, in, in more broadly. Can, can you unpack that? I know this is one of your favorite topics because we actually did a salon about specialists versus generalists, and people were quoting your tweets. <laughs> I was like, oh no, I have to read more Eric tweets now because <laughs> I was just like there, like I have no idea. But I, we, we looked at them, and now I know. So um, there's a book by a Stanford um, academic called uh, Mira Struber called Interdisciplinary Conversations, and this lady spent 45 years researching. You know, she she tried to start interdisciplinary projects in the 70s in America. And she brought together people and she had funding. She got the room. They got free coffee. Like everything was in place, right? The photocopier and the girland, everything was there. And then, you know, she would get into these situations like, oh, the Chicago School Economist is sitting there with the Quaker theologists. And it was a huge fight. And the, and the theologist runs out crying. And she's like, what happened? Why can't these people talk to Like they are experts at the same things. You know, they are both willing. They are there. And then you're like, yeah, yeah, because they speak a completely different language, right? You can't just say, you know, you come from maybe a more, you know, 
disagreeable culture. And then there's another person who is like, let's first wait. And what she started experimenting with, and then a lot of other thinkers, you know, to get much further down the road is establishing the shared humanity. Because nowadays you would approach the situation saying like, okay, so here's the Quaker theologist and here's the Chicago school economist. So who has pets, you know? <laughs> or who can make a, an awesome quesadilla? Let's do this. And, and once everybody's like well-fed and showed all their cat photos, then you can get down to business because now we've kind of established that, okay, we are just humans in the room. Now, I mean, I, this is what um, I'm experimenting with. In, in, I mean, we have a relatively well um you know, formulated idea of moderation now. And I'm just working on a new piece to basically write it down and be like, guys, try this at home. Um, and one of one of the key parts is, is the intros and how you kind of create the beginning um, into something that will just make people chill out <laughs> and make people realize like they are actually there to have fun. So why not do it? And to that end, I want to hear from, from, from both of you. What is your hope for what, someone aims to get out of a uh, intellect event or, or, or a community meetup for, for, for Nest Labs? Like, what is the what is the secret for making a, a, re- a really great, um, you know, of your respective uh, meetups uh, work well? Like, what is the one takeaway you want your host to, to have or, or whoever's uh, organizing? It may sound counterintuitive, but to me, a great Nest Labs meetup is when people leave with more questions than they had before they joined. That's why, to me, they are every time I'm the one hosting a meetup, which only happens last time I checked, like five percent of the time these days. I don't host that many anymore, but I always introduce the meetup by saying, "Hey, this is not a presentation. This is not a workshop. This is not a place where you're going to come and sit and listen and take notes and get answers. This is a place where everybody is invited to share their experiences, their challenges, their strategies. We're all going to learn from each other." And if this event is a success, you should have some answers to some of your questions, but also many more questions that you didn't even know you had before joining. Many more opportunities to explore, to learn, to go on your own journey, to research more around this topic, to connect with fellow members, to try and unpack this together. To me, this is a great meetup when you leave and you're like, whoa, I learned so much, but also you know, the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? You don't know what you don't know. If you leave the meetup realizing how much you don't know about this topic and how excited you are about learning more, this is a great success in my book. I love this so much. It reminds me, I recently did the 2-3andMe test, you know, when they send you this tube and you, in a very, you know, not very uh, <laughs> Instagram shareable moment, you just keep spitting into it for 30 minutes and then you send it via post. It's great. And I remember when I got my results and... I felt like, you know, I, I did this because I wanted to have answers. And then it just opens up all of these questions. Like, how am I one person English? What happened? Oh, my God. And you're just up all night. <laughs> you're like, this is like, I just paid money to get so many more questions than what got answered here. Um, but I love this. And, and I mean, I really, really love the whole infinite game um, theory. And we often talk about this, you know, like, interact is an infinite game you know, winning is that people want to keep playing with you. And we have four pillars of hosting an II salon that I teach to the hosts and now hosts teach each other, which is the imperfect host. So you are not a teacher. It's not not ex-cathedra. You are there as a human. 
you know, I don't know if you've seen me host live events, I spill my drink, the projector doesn't work, like something else, like make something go wrong. So people chill out and, and, and enjoy, you know, um, their brains uh, without feeling like, oh, I'm, I'm on the spot or, or something. Then we have the stickiness as well. So, you know, create environments where people understand that if they choose to, they will see these people again. So you, it's worth listening to the other person, worth remembering details about them, worth opening up to them because it's not like, oh, then this person just goes down the drain and I will never see them again. Uh, we have the ritual space, which is that intern tax salons are always the same format. So like church or school, people know what to expect. It's always the same length, same parts happening. And, and it makes, you know, a kind of fundamental part of people relax. And that's when connections and, and connections between ideas can come to light because you don't have to worry about you, you don't have to prep for uncertainty at the basic level so that's very important for me and the fourth thing and, and I'm just working on first of all renaming it but also just we are just exploring this with the hosts is we call it anchoring and it's very closely tied to the intro um, question which is that we find that most negative associations or negative experiences in conversation and particularly when it involves politics or worldview and interact involves worldview a lot because we talk about values right and taste so it's a we talk about morality a lot in that sense is that we don't leave spaces where that people can fill in with potentially negative imagination so people come in it's their own face it's their name if somebody has to leave early they will say right away i and then they introduce themselves and you know who is there and you get a kind of a vibe check. And, and we find that these four things create a level of trust that I think, I mean, you know, when we are like, oh my God, how, how do these things happen at internet excellence? Like sometimes it's incredibly cathartic and people share and, and create things on the spot that, you know, it's, it's like magic. Like you're just sitting there and you don't understand how is this happening. And it happens every night or multiple times a day. Um, and I think it comes because these four things are so stably there. It's almost like this super strong foundation for the for the building. And then you can have the biggest party in the building, right? You don't have to worry that it falls apart. Um, and I think this is, if, 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 you know, kind of to go back to your earlier question, Eric, I think a trend uh, that we will see more of in the future in all sorts of fields is that people will work more on the foundations because they will understand that counterintuitively, if you want decentralized, if you want surprising, if you want diverse, you have to create foundations that are extremely fixed because that's where it can happen, right? That's where you can, I mean, it's much easier to have a good conversation with you guys right now that I don't have to worry that somebody will pull out the chair from under me, right? This part of me is completely relaxed. I'm, I'm a bit less certain about the Wi-Fi, but that's another question. But, uh, you know, and, and, and like, what is the psychological equivalent of, of that kind of physical stability? Um, because if it's not there, then you will be in, you know, you will be a little bit like squirmish and you will be listening less to the other person, stuff like that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Maybe gearing towards closing here, you know, we talked about certain elements that make our, our communities magic, magical. We talked about sort of the, the rise of, of learning communities. L let's talk about uh, the, the business uh, uh, of these communities in terms of how, how, how you recommend they think about business models or, or just sustainability more broadly. And Laura, perhaps we could start with you. Um, yeah, we have a very simple model at Nest Labs. You can pay a price 
that is lower or a price that is higher and it gives you access to the exact same things so the lower price is for people who are either students or don't have a job at the moment which is unfortunately the case a lot with the pandemic lots of people have lost their jobs or people who are part of I don't know if there's a better word for it, but the global south where they don't have the same purchasing power that you may have in the US or Europe. So that's the lower price that we have. And then we have a higher price for people who are maybe more successful entrepreneurs or employees working in tech or based in Europe or in the US. And we make it very clear on the landing page that you don't get any extra benefits from getting the higher priced subscription. And it's quite interesting because so far we've been seeing 30% of people signing up for the higher priced one, even though, again, very clear, you don't get anything more. So I find it absolutely amazing that these generous people are willing to subsidize other members who may not have the means to pay for the full price of the membership. And that's it. Very simple. Everything is included. Um, it's a recurring membership. And to me, this is a model that's, and I would love, I'm excited to hear about the way you're thinking about it, Anna, because we have a completely different business model. To me, uh, because we're a very small team, we're only two people. This is also peace of mind as a solo founder. It's so simple to manage. I have a really good bird's eye view of my recurring revenue. I just know this is the number of members I have at the moment. And this is the money that is going to hit our business accounts this month. And the same way Anna mentioned how it's important to have this kind of solid base that you don't worry about. To me, in terms of business model, this is what it is. I don't have to worry about this. And my mind is free to experiment and to play with new offering, new products, etc. Because I know that I have this stable base that is not going to move in very unpredictable ways. So that's how the business model works at Nest Labs. I love it. And I loved your tweet when you were like, guys, you want to pay more? Okay, here is the button. <laughs> it's just like the perfect fit. Um, so for us, I mean, obviously my, um, you know, as being a community enabled business, and we are technically an event company, right? And while at a surface glance, you would think that we make events. In reality, we make hosts. And that's our, you know, if your startup is a factory, that's what we make. Uh, beautiful, beautiful hosts. <laughs> and so our primary goal is to make hosts money, right? So for us, you know, we take a cut from, from certain types of revenues that the hosts have. And I kind of, to go back to your question about agency, there are elements in the making that will function a little bit like an agency, although currently that's not the main focus. Um, but we are also going to be launching a very, very simple uh, membership because we started, so people started asking about, and we're also just two people, right? And people started asking about whether they could pay to get into the forum. And for a long time, I, I didn't want to monetize it because I thought that if I start monetizing that, then my incentive will be to grow that part of the business as opposed to the events, which, you know, is the core of our mission. Um, but, they, but what we see from donations is that some people feel more comfortable uh, paying for it. And so we're like, okay, there's going to be an experimental, you know, way to do that. And then I will see. 
for me, I think that kind of um, that kind of uh, certainty that Anna you mentioned about just you know waking up and knowing that oh this is default alive <laughs> is is the host community and knowing that all these are all this long series in the making. People are writing books about it. People are doing salons about the books they are writing. And you you kind of see, I think like 70% of all the communication I deal with all day is just salon ideas. This morning I woke up and I got this text that somebody wants to do a salon series on a halt and catch fire. But I was so sleepy. So I looked at my phone and I was like, oh, height and catch fire, like Jonathan Haidt and catch fire. I was like, oh my God, we are so witty. And then I was, no, 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 no. This is another TV series. But maybe one day we will do Jonathan Haidt and catch fire. I think that would be hilarious. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, that's a great place to, 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 to wrap, I think. If people enjoyed what, what they heard, uh, I highly recommend checking out both uh, Inner Intellect and, and Nest Labs. I believe it's just innerintellect.com and nestlabs.com. And uh, also, uh, Anna and, and Laura are great on Twitter as well. Anna and Laura, uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. This has been a great episode. Thanks so much for having us, Eric. Thank you so much. Follow Anna Laura on Twitter. She's amazing. Me, uh, depends <laughs> on the day. No, follow Anna. She's really weird on Twitter, but the best. <laughs> so weird, I know. Twitter is like, Twitter is like I, I, I tend to say like everything uh, that, that used to end high school dates because people thought you were really weird gets you a lot of followers. It's like <laughs> the world is upside down. <laughs> yeah, that, I, I like that frame. Thank you so much, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc. be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.